This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. We are keeping an eye on Hurricane Idalia, which I will be calling Hurricane Idala because of my friend Arthur Idala. It has begun a barrage on Florida, and landfall is expected a little bit later today. Heavy rain is already spreading across the state, and uh, we will keep you up to date on all of that. I know we have a lot of listeners in um in all over the state of florida quite frankly but there's um if anybody wants to call in and give us an update on what they're seeing they should feel free to do so at 800-848-9222 this is no joke i I am always hesitant to play into the hysteria on this because i think a lot of the cable news stations a lot of the radio stations try to play up these storms for ratings, quite frankly. But they have begun evacuations in at least 28 counties and a storm surge, which is being described as life-threatening, is expected to peak within the next few hours. So this is a real big deal. And the storm forecast is supposed to race northeast to the Carolinas later today as well. So uh, anybody that's in the the southeast portion of our country, our heart goes out to you. Let us know what's going on, what you're experiencing, what you need. And I've reached out to several friends of mine and family members that are in Florida. In fact, I have a couple of friends that just went on uh, a vacation to this very same area that's expected to be battered by this hurricane just uh, they I drove them to the airport on Sunday and I wish them luck so far they said uh, all seems pretty even keel but you leave New York for Florida thinking you're going to experience nice weather and a nice pleasant vacation and all of a sudden it's a, a different ball game hey um the other issue other than hurricane Idalia or Idala that is continuing to strengthen is back to school. On Monday is Labor Day. And uh, by the way, Metplays, are you going to be here on Labor Day? What's your story? I will be here. You will be here. Are you going to be here? Uh, well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Kenneth, about are, it? are you going to be here? I shall be here. You will be here. See, now I feel bad taking the day off. So I, um, I, w- I was planning to take the day off because it is a company holiday and we wanted to make plans with family and do some interesting things. And I was all set to take the day off, but I was told that we are starting on uh, another, you know, another radio station, a big radio station 
on Monday. And obviously, if we're starting on a, another big new radio station on Monday, I'm not going to subject them to a fill-in host. It's not a great way to make a first impression. So I was going to come in to work. But I am um, – when they say we're starting on Monday, I don't know if in their view they mean Monday as in Monday starts at midnight, which is how I view it, or they mean Monday during the day, which for us would kind of be like Tuesday morning. So I'm waiting to hear back. I have I've asked for the day off on Monday. It's, it's a holiday. I'm hoping to have the day off, but I'm not sure. So I may be here. I may not. But in any event, all of the parents in my neighborhood – All of the parents all over the region, all the parents that I know, they're all talking about back to school, getting their children back to school. Kids are in the midst of returning to school. And there's one thing that a lot of parents and, quite frankly, a lot of children have on their mind, and that is safety. You see all these stories about school shootings. Now, school shootings still are relatively rare, but they're a heck of a lot more common than they used to be. And I I mean, I I hate to think about this when my my son is going to be of this age in just a couple of years. I hate to think about the fact that school shootings are now something that parents and children need to think about every day. But the truth is they do. They do. And so there are now a whole bunch of new school rules requiring see-through backpacks. And these new rules requiring see-through backpacks are rising as students return to class. More shootings on campus are making school administrators choose between letting students express themselves and taking extra steps to keep schools safe. At least 27 school districts in the past 18 months have started restricting school backpacks. That's no joke. That's according to the Washington Post. There have been 221 school shootings so far this calendar year. There were 305 total last year. You know how many there were a decade ago? Think of what I just said. There were 305 total last year. How many do you think there were a decade ago? Now, remember, a decade ago, it's not like uh, we're living in the land of uh, leave it to beaver, father knows best, bucolic uh, schoolhouse rocks era. Ten years ago, that was 2013. That was post-Columbine. That was post a lot of these uh, Jonesboro. After a lot of these school shootings, how many school shootings do you think there were a decade ago? 34. 34. Last year, there were 305. So what are schools doing? Some schools started giving out clear backpacks in the aftermath of a shooting in the mid-2000s. And now many districts are instituting it as an umbrella policy. And these policies span the country, and they vary widely. In Newport News, Virginia, where a six-year-old shot his teacher last year, Clear backpacks were part of several district-wide changes. Many Texas schools made changes after the Uvalde shooting. And in Flint, Michigan, what they've done, I'm not sure how this is going to work, but in Flint, Michigan, they have banned backpacks altogether. So what I'd like to ask you is, does this make sense? Should schools be instituting clear backpacks or banning backpacks entirely.
Here are some parents in Clark County in Nevada talking about uh, this new protocol and this new push to implement clear backpacks in schools. I actually did vote for for the idea of clear backpacks just because of the um, threat, the gun threat that was going on last year. The teachers and the staff can see what's in their backpacks for the kids. Clear backpacks. What do you think? Is this an overreaction? Is this unnecessary? Or is this common sense? You know, I was trying to think of this. And honestly, I don't, uh, and I'm all for civil liberties. I'm all for privacy rights. Privacy rights are different when it comes to children. If you're a six-year-old, a seven-year-old, it's just, it's a different ball game. That being said, I still think, you know, if you're a child, you should be afforded some right of, of dignity and self-expression and things of that nature. But I'm not sure how I understand – I'm not sure if I understand how a clear backpack would hinder privacy. I mean, you're there to go to school. You shouldn't be carrying contraband, whether that's a, a weapon, whether that's drugs, or whether that's somebody else. So I always – I'm a guy that always likes to see all sides of the issue, and I always try to – I always tend to fall on the side of civil liberties – But honestly, what is the case to be made against clear backpacks? Am I missing something? Again, I realize that school shootings are relatively rare. That's all well and good until there's a school shooting at your child's school. Why wouldn't you want clear backpacks? So unless somebody can convince me otherwise, I am all for every school district. Implementing clear backpacks. What do you think? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Children of certain parents were voicing, were voicing their opinion on the idea of clear backpacks. But it's just everyone keeps looking inside of it. And then, like, you see all this. I think that it was a loss of privacy towards the students. It was a loss of money towards the parents because clear backpacks are... Average around $35. Well, I, I, I can't imagine, maybe that's true. Are clear backpacks specifically a lot more expensive than non-clear backpacks? Okay, maybe that's the thing. Jacqueline Sheldcrowd uh, with the Rockefeller Institute says there isn't evidence that clear backpacks really make much of a difference. This is what she said. We really haven't seen any evidence that clear backpacks do anything to dissuade students from bringing weapons or other contraband into schools. But the messaging that it sends to students when that hasn't been in place before is either we don't think your school is safe or we don't trust you. Okay, okay, I I get what she's saying. As far as clear evidence goes, that doesn't necessarily hold water with me. Because I think part of the rationale of a uh, a clear backpack is a child would be less likely to carry with them into school something that they shouldn't be having, whether it's drugs, whether it's weapons, whether it's something else. As far as what she's saying about that message that's being sent to uh, children, that either your school's not safe or we don't trust you. Don't we send the message, we don't trust you, to children all the time? I mean, there are school districts that require you to go through metal detectors. There's all sorts of aspects of the school day that require parental supervision. You can't go on a permission – you can't go on a school trip without a permission slip. There's all sorts of aspects 
of the scholastic life of a student that involves, I don't know, parents and the school district basically giving the impression of, yeah, we don't trust you. Now, when they say the message it's sending is your school's not safe, I get that. I get that. The reality is every school is safe until it isn't, okay? Every school is safe until it's one of the 305 schools that's experiencing a school shooting. So if it makes a child less likely to carry a gun or a knife or drugs to school, to me, it's a no-brainer. And again, I'm a, a, a champion of civil liberties and a champion of privacy rights, including for children. But I'm not sure that I think the arguments against clear backpacks make a whole lot of sense to me. Tell me if I'm wrong. 800-848-9222. I wouldn't mind it at all, my child taking a clear backpack to school. You know what you're supposed to have in your backpack? Books. Books. Notepads. Pens. Pencils. Maybe a calculator. Why do you need something that's not clear? I think a clear backpack makes a lot of sense. What say you? 800-848-9222. Anybody, by the way, that is against the idea of clear backpacks, I especially want to hear from you. And we will put you to the front of the list, front of the line. Let me first begin with Lisa in Brooklyn. Hello, Lisa. Hi, how are you? Uh, besides clear backpacks, I believe in metal detectors, I believe in retired police officers, and all doors must be locked. That's what I believe in. I went to school, and I'm almost 60, with metal detectors because there was one death in the school, and that was in South Shore High School in Canarsie because there was a riot there, and someone died, and since that happened, they had metal detectors. Now the school is in, I think, it's a charter school, but I believe in all of that. Children have to be safe. That's it. Well, what do you make of what this woman, uh, Jacqueline Schildkraut, said that there's no evidence that these clear backpacks make any difference? Well, if you're really looking for something, it will make a difference. But are these teachers or whoever's going to be monitoring the desk when the kids come in actually looking? They could have a gun in their pants. They could have it in their pocket. Right. We don't know. That's why I believe in metal detectors. I believe in retired police officers. As long as, you know, the, I believe in cops, okay? But there are bad in everything. We have to make sure it's a good cop and a good retired cop. I believe you have to be safe. And the better security, the better our kids will be safe. That's it. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Lisa. My view is the idea of a clear backpack in an era Look, this is no joke. 305 school shootings in one year. I mean, that's that's a big deal. And it's going up. It's going up every year. My view is clear backpacks are almost like um, chicken soup. It doesn't hurt. What's the argument against it? Right? Can only help. 800-848-9222. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Especially, I'd love to hear from you if you're a parent or a grandparent or a school teacher or an administrator. Al is in Yonkers. Hello, Al. Hello, Frank. Good morning to you. Morning. You know, I think it's a good idea to clear uh, backpacks because anything that would be a deterrent uh, is a good idea. It's the times we live in now since uh, post-Columbine in 1999. 
And even yesterday, as you know, yesterday on the news, uh, we had a lockdown in uh, the first day of school in a university in the state of North Carolina. So I think it's a good idea. Anything that's going to be a deterrent uh, to even maybe rattle uh, a child, I mean, a teenager or a a school student who wants to come in with bad intentions to the school, it might make him uh, have second thoughts, he or she. Now, look, obviously, Al, I think I agree with you. But what do you make of what this woman said from the Rockefeller Institute, which is that it sends the message, if you have these, these clear backpacks and a mandate for clear backpacks, it sends the message to a child that, one, your school is not safe, and two, we don't trust you. Yeah, I think, I think you know, the, the student would have to realize that, you know, from his parents or somebody, you know, that they have to explain. It's just the times we live in now. Uh, things are, like you said, uh, have changed so much in the last 30, 40 years in regards to uh, violence in the schools. All right, Al, thank you. We're gonna, we'll continue with your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. In about 40 minutes, we're going to delve into the curious case of Jack the Ripper. Who was he? And what in the world did the father of the modern mystery novel, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, think about Jack the Ripper? We're going to get into this with uh, a doctor, a medical doctor, with uh, Dan Friedman next hour. But uh, we have six open lines if you want to comment. We are keeping an eye on Hurricane Idala. This is expected to become a Category 4 storm. Right now it's a Category 2. There are 110 mile-per-hour winds. This is going to be bad. And again, I'm not trying to add to the hype, and I hope it's not bad. But they don't, in Florida, where they experience a lot of inclement weather all the time, They don't issue an evacuation order for 28 counties willy-nilly. So we're going to get into this uh, throughout the course of the next three and a half hours. We'll tell you what to expect. And uh, if you happen to be in Florida, let us know what what you're seeing. Jacksonville, for instance, is expecting to see a one to three foot storm surge. It's, uh, you know, those of us that live through Hurricane Sandy, we recognize this is not something to take lightly. So... We'll we'll stay on top of this. All right, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The shark, babe, has such teeth, dear, and it shows them pearly white. Just a jackknife has old Maggie Heath, babe, and it keeps it uh, out of sight. You know when that shark bites with his teeth, babe, scarlet billows. Start to spread Fancy gloves though Where's old Maggie Heath, babe So there's never Never a trace of red 
on the sidewalk Ooh, Sunday morning uh -huh. Lies a body Just oozing The great Bobby Darren the, uh, His proper name Is Walden Robert Casoto And uh, for my money One of the greatest singers Who has ever lived And uh, one that was taken from the world Far too quickly And this song, uh, Mac the Knife is if you listen to the lyrics, it's it's about a knife wielding criminal of the London underworld who uses the title Mac the Knife, and it's it's like a Jack the Ripper type figure. Well, uh, for a long time we have been trying to figure out who is Jack the Ripper, a fellow that has delved into this in a big way is Dr. Daniel Friedman. We're going to get into this with him in about 32 minutes. So if you're interested in the mystery of Jack the Ripper and what possibly this may have to do with, of all people, Sherlock Holmes, you are going to want to listen to this. It's going to be a very interesting discussion. At least I hope it will be. I don't know. Uh, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. My son has many uh, obsessions. He likes when, he likes to press doorbells. He says when we go, when we're walking around, he'll go, sometimes it's a stranger's house, hopefully it's a friend or a family member. He'll say, button, button, and he'll want to press the, the doorbell. He likes it when we go into a room and the lights are on. We were at my Aunt Camille's yesterday. I forgot to bring in the egg salad. I'll bring it in tomorrow. She did make a fresh batch of egg salad. Thank you, Aunt Camille. And we were at my Aunt, we at my Aunt Camille's house yesterday. And she, he goes in room after room and he looks up and points and he says, Oh, no! And my Aunt Camille, do you think something's wrong? And she says, Why is he saying, Oh, no? I said, well, the lights in the kitchen are not on. She says, oh, you want to turn the lights on? And she'll turn the lights on. And the lights are on. And then and then, <laughs> as soon as the lights go on, he'll go into another room and then he'll look up in that room. And now he's in the dining room and he'll say, oh, no. And why is he saying, oh, no? Well, the lights are not on in the dining room. And you have to turn the lights there. So he likes it when the lights are on. However. There is one obsession that my 21-month-old Carmine uh, has over all else, and that is ceiling fans. This young man is obsessed with ceiling fans. Thank God we don't have any in our house because it would be running 24 hours a day. When we go to my dad's house, the first thing he does is he goes into the family room and he points up and he just goes, uh, uh, and he'll go, fan, fan. And they have to turn the ceiling fan on. As soon as they turn the ceiling fan on, he runs upstairs and he checks all of the rooms to make sure the ceiling fans are on. I'm, I'm not joking. It is an obsession. When we go to, you know, we run around outside a lot. Our neighbor has ceiling fans on her porch. When she's not home, he flips out because the ceiling fans on her porch are not on. If she is home, he makes her turn them on. Then uh, he knows 
which house I'm not joking. He's you know twenty months old, twenty one months old, and he knows which houses on our block have ceiling fans, and he demands to go in there and go in room after room and look up and have them turn on the ceiling fans. More so than that, my wife does this thing. A lot of iPhone users do it. It's like video conferencing. I don't remember what they call it. FaceTime. FaceTime. And if you're an iPhone user, you can you can video conference with um you know with your other people and see their image on your phone. And so you you know you see the you know the ceiling the ceiling fan if they have a ceiling fan. So when he's in the room with my wife and she's talking to her sister and the sister doesn't have the ceiling fan on, he says Fan, fan, he's really, really obsessed with it. So much so that if we go to someone's house that he knows has ceiling fans, they he will try and go into all of their rooms and say, check, check, meaning he wants to check if they have the ceiling fan on. Now, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? Well, my son doesn't know anything about elections or voting, although we did go to vote last year and, you know, he seemed to take to it. But if he could vote next year, something tells me he would be voting against President Biden because the Biden administration is targeting ceiling fans, <sighs> saying that the appliances should be more energy efficient. The Department of Energy is proposing a new rule that it says would reduce air pollution while making ceiling fans more energy efficient in order to save households money on energy costs. This new rule would apparently save households about $39 over the lifespan of the new energy efficient fan, according to the Department of Energy. The department added it would cost a total of $86.6 million per year associated with the increase, with the increased equipment manufacturers will need. So, um, we'll see where this goes, but, um, I, I don't know that they're going to be doing away with ceiling fans anytime soon, but, there is a serious movement from the Department of Energy towards increased energy efficiency for ceiling fans. We'll see where it goes. I don't know that Carmine has a position on energy efficiency. He just likes the fans. He likes to see them rotate, but... If there's anything that's going to make it more likely that people won't have ceiling fans... He's against it. We'll see where it goes. All right. 800-848-9222. Speaking of children, a lot of children are going back to school next week and the following week. And people are concerned about school safety. And so one of the things that's being done in school districts around the country is a movement towards clear backpacks. They're trying to, you know, they're trying to implement clear backpacks that you can't bring a weapon or something along those lines. Good idea, bad idea, neither. What do you think? 800-848-9222. My view of this is, I think this is a pretty good idea. What's the harm? Maybe it doesn't stop all shootings. Maybe it stops some. How about this? Maybe it stops one. It's a pretty good idea if you can 
800-848-9222. Joanne is in Westchester. What do you think, Joanne? Yes, hi. I have um, three, uh, four grandchildren, but three school age. Okay, so one is um, one's four. The little girl will be starting pre-K. So I don't know if that pertains to that. But the other two are seven and eight. And I th- is that the age group that we're talking about? Well, I mean, I, I think it, we're talking about every age group. Every age, yeah. I think so, too, because they, they just they know what they know even at four. I'm telling you, it's amazing. Uh, and the little guy's two and a half, so he's not into that yet, uh. I don't think. But you never know. You never know. I think totally I am in favor of it because, you know what, we just have to stop pampering these kids. You know, the mothers today I noticed do, including my own. And they just, uh, oh, you know, if you don't want it, darling, you know, no, none of that. They have to, in fact, be told emphatically that this is how it's done. And that's it, period, the end. Otherwise, you don't go to school. You're not with normal children. You know, you, you play it up with them with that. And that's it. You want to go to school? You have to You have to follow the rules. Hey, we all had to follow the rules. I totally believe in it. I noticed the, kid, the younger kids today, and they're not so young. They're in their 30s and 40s, all the parents. They're, they're older than we were. At our, you know, we had kids in, in our 20s, early 20s, um, and, and, you know, and so on and so forth. But I don't think that we should be giving in to them. We need to do what is safest, what is best, and what is, in fact, the, the rule of thumb, so to speak. I mean, they really need to look at this is it, period, the end. No ifs, ands, or buts. Okay, so is that so? That's my feeling on that. Um, because it is, it, you know what? It is. Um, it will deter, um, you know, certain um, certain uh, occurrences. I believe, it, or at least it could. Um, the other thing, because I I don't think that there's going to be too much in the way of, um, uh, say, guards, which I think we should have. That would be a good idea too. But if you make a line of kids. You're going to be there all day, all morning, for three hours, checking every single backpack otherwise. So, I mean, I think. I, I don't know. I, what do you think? Well, look, my my view, and thanks for the call, Joanne, my view is that uh, I, I don't see the harm. I think if all things are equal, and I, why aren't they, I think clear backpacks make sense. I, I recognize that it's not 100%. Maybe it helps a little bit. Why not? That's what, what I don't get. So far, the best argument that I've heard is from this woman from the Rockefeller Institute, Jacqueline Schildkraut, that says you're sending the message that your your school is not safe or we don't trust you. I, I don't agree. I mean, I think you're sending the message that we want to keep your school safe. And this is one of the safeguards that's in place so that we can keep your school safe. But again, I'm not an expert on this kind of thing, and uh, I'd love to hear from some people that are a little bit more well-versed on this issue than I am. 800-848-9222. Pamela in New Jersey, I know you're a teacher. What's your view of clear backpacks? Well, I had one of my students in high school say to me one time, Miss, you'd be surprised what kids are carrying in their knapsacks. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I can imagine to myself. <laughs> did, do you know if – did you take that to mean – that he was talking about uh, weapons or or drugs or something else. Uh, I assumed anything, but anything. Uh huh. And he wasn't naming specifics. He was just saying in general. And so I'm for it. It's kind of though. It's sad in our society. It's like putting a band aid on a dam. But you do what you can right now. 
And I think, you know, it can help. And about that uh, scientific study about it, it, it says to the kids that you don't trust them. Well, I would tell well, my kids again, right now, oh, yeah. don't you don't you trust me, miss? And I said, uh, trust but verify. You know, I would tell them, like, <laughs> you, you know what? This is a nod society right now, so we we got to do what we got to do. You, you just be up front with the kids. And they know. They're not stupid. They know. And, uh, oh, and as far as your child, he's in the uh, cause and effect stage of development where he realizes if he presses a button, something happens. And maybe he, you have a blossoming air traffic controller or, he, or he's going to uh, be the head of a nuclear plant someday. I, I would love that. There's a big shortage in air traffic controllers. He could probably make some money. Thanks, Pamela. Helen in Connecticut, what do you think? Hi there. Uh, I love Bobby Darren, too. Um, Having been um, in education for a while, there have been many things that have been instituted for the safety of children. For instance, fire drills. Um, A fire drill is there not because there's a fire all the time, but there may be a fire, and therefore children are taught what to do, how to do it, um, how to exit properly, where to stand, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, it's really no different than that in terms of uh, public safety. Uh, The other thing I like about the uh, backpack idea that it's clear, I I think it's a little more egalitarian because, in a sense, there are some kids who can afford fancy schmancy backpacks, etc. This way it's more like a uniform, and um, it's a bit more of an equalizer. And the other thing is a question of neatness. I know it's it's kind of bizarre, but in a way, it may help certain children realize that how you pack a backpack, what's in the backpack, et cetera, how does it show, it, it will create somewhat of an image of what it is that you're carrying. So for those reasons, um, I think for public safety and so forth, it is really not a bad idea. And I think Carmine is heading towards being um, a definite uh, electrical engineer. I, he's got engine. He's got engineer in his blood. I'd love that. That would be great. Uh, very great call, Helen. Thanks, Neil on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Frank. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's a great idea. Number one, the backpacks would be made of plastic, and they're cheap. They crack. They rip. And uh, if there's a parent, you'd be buying a lot of backpacks. There's no longevity to them. I think a better solution. And what about checking the kid's lunchbox? Do they got clear lunchboxes? Well, the kid can't hide a knife or a gun in, in his coat or, 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 or in his pants or under his shirt. It's, it's, the backpack is going to make a difference. But I think a better solution would be to hold the parent responsible. If the kid is carrying a gun, prosecute the parent. If the kid's carrying a knife, Make it, like, say, an automatic $10,000 fine for the parent. And I think once you have the parents more involved and with the parents to know something's going to happen to them, maybe then they'll start talking to the little stinkers so they don't bring these things up to school. Yeah, I mean, we've, we've talked about that issue, and thanks, Neil, of uh, parental, um, I don't know, parental penalties for ch- child's misdeeds. I see both sides of that. I um, I don't know that... This clear backpack issue either precludes that or goes does anything to differentiate from that. I think you could still have parental penalties if you had clear backpacks. As far as what you're saying in terms of the backpacks would be made cheaply and you'd need more, 
I don't know, you'd need to replace them more frequently. Don't you replace a backpack every year anyway? I, I don't see it being an issue of needing to replace backpacks more often, personally. I don't know. All right, 800-848-9222. This is the other side of mid... Oh, you know what I, what I meant to comment on? You know who dropped out of the presidential race yesterday? The mayor of Miami, very apropos that we're watching what's going on in Florida with Hurricane Idala. But the mayor of Miami, Francis Suarez, ended his campaign for president. I feel like he just got in. And you know the only thing... I know two things about the mayor of Miami, uh, Francis Suarez. Only two things. One, I know he was all for cryptocurrency. The other thing I know is that everyone went on and on about how handsome he was. And it was so annoying. I have to tell you, every single article about this guy was about how handsome he was. Now, those of us, those of us that aren't that handsome, we don't mind seeing this guy go away. Speaking for the non-handsome people among us, I'm glad we have only ugly candidates running now. I'm glad. Good. Good. Nobody, you know, there's all sorts of articles that can be written about all the candidates running. Uh, Mike Pence, Chris Christie, Vivek Ramaswamy, Ron DeSantis, uh, Donald Trump. Who else is running? Uh, Nikki Haley. Well, um, Asa Hutchinson. None of these articles all begin by saying the handsome former governor of New Jersey, the handsome former president of the United States. No, but for whatever reason, the media decided to anoint these guys uh, or this guy specifically, Francis Suarez, as being handsome. So the fact that he's gone, good riddance. Who needs him? Go back to Miami. Be handsome down there. All right. Um, 800-848-9222. This is the other side of midnight. We're keeping an eye on Hurricane Idala, which uh, is expected to pummel the west coast of Florida, Sarasota, Tampa, Kissimmee, Ocala, Cedar Key, and Jacksonville, all expected to be hit very harshly. We're keeping an eye on that. I am uh, in touch with friends of mine, family members of mine that are in Florida right now. They'll say, they said they'll keep us posted on everything. We're thinking about you if you're down there. And uh, we'll talk Jack the Ripper coming up in about 15 minutes. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at midnight with Frank Morano.
Joe Walsh singing Rocky Mountain Way. Uh, There's a reference in this song to the mighty Casey, Casey at the Bat, right? One of the most uh, famous baseball poems of all time. And it's apropos to remember this song today and remember Casey at the Bat because it was on this day in 1965 that one of the greatest baseball managers of all time and somebody, even one of the, beyond being a great manager, one of the great baseball personalities of all time, Casey Stengel, announced his retirement. He had been managing the New York Metropolitans, and um, they were just awful under Casey Stengel's leadership. But he still managed to be one of the first numbers ever retired by the uh, the New York Mets. You know, the sports writer Joe Durso wrote of uh, Casey Stengel, On days when Stengel's amazing Mets were for some reason amazing, he simply sat back and let the writers swarm over the heroes of the diamond. On the days when the Mets were less than amazing, and there were many more days like that, he stepped into the vacuum and diverted the writers' attention and typewriters to his own flamboyance. The perfect link with the public was formed, and it grew stronger as the team grew zanier. It's really, really an extraordinary man, and I don't want to take anything away from his abilities as a manager because his tenure with the Yankees in the uh, in 1950s is the stuff of legend. But um, for him to kind of be willing to make himself the issue while he was managing the worst team in baseball and to say, pay no attention to the baseball team on the diamond. Look at the shiny object here. It took for everybody that loved to portray him as dumb, which he was not. They called him the old professor for a reason, as zany as he was. They, um, for He was an incredibly smart guy, not only when it came to baseball, but when it came to public relations for that very reason. You know, I had the opportunity to meet uh, Warren Spahn. And Warren Spahn um, played for for Casey Stengel with the Atlanta, the uh, Braves, not the Atlanta Braves, I think it was still still the Milwaukee Braves. And then he worked for Casey Stengel when Casey Stengel took over as the manager of the Mets. I think he was the, the pitching coach. He may have pitched a season with the Mets, but I think he was the, the pitching coach. And uh, I met Casey Stengel at uh, – yeah, no, he pitched. He pitched for the Mets as well, 1965. And then I believe he uh, went on to a coaching position as well. But in any event, he worked for Casey Stengel when he was with the Mets. And I met uh, Warren Spawn once at the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown many, many years ago, more than 30 years ago. And he said to me of Casey Stengel, because I knew that he – had a relationship with Casey Stengel. I said, hey, what do you think of Casey Stengel? And the only thing Warren Spahn said to me was, I had the distinction and maybe the distinction of being the only person of working for Casey Stengel before and after he was a genius. Because obviously he was a genius with the Yankees and that was not the case when he was with the Braves or the New York Metropolitans. So be it. All right. Uh, we're going to talk Jack the Ripper in just a few minutes. 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on anything we are talking about, 800-848-9222. One thing I do want to give uh, President Biden credit for is the idea, and I've been for this for literally decades, 
And I said this during the uh, 2016 presidential campaign that I thought it was great that both Trump and Bernie Sanders were making an issue with this. And I thought it was that was one of my disappointments with Trump is that he didn't necessarily get this done when he was president. One of the things that the Inflation Reduction Act has done is implement something called the Price Negotiation Program, which a give it gives Medicare the ability to negotiate prices directly with the drug companies, the same way the Department of Veterans Affairs does, the same way any bulk buyer of anything does. And so yesterday, the first drugs selected for price negotiations were revealed. They're almost all drugs that I can't pronounce, but they're drugs for diabetes, drugs for preventing strokes, drugs for heart failure, drugs for arthritis, drugs for blood cancer, drugs for Crohn's disease. And I, I think this is a great thing. And so I have no hesitancy about telling you when I think President Biden or any elected official does something wrong. This is a home run. And I think this is great. And the drug companies are going to court to try to stop this. And I hope they're not successful. We'll see where it goes. But uh, I think it's a shame that they're trying to put a stop to this because there's no reason that a bulk buyer like Medicare, which spends billions of dollars annually, shouldn't be able to use their purchasing power to negotiate prices and get the best price possible for the people that are on Medicare. And uh, I thought that was a good idea when Bernie Sanders proposed it. I thought it was a good idea when Trump proposed it. I thought it was a good idea for years. And I'm glad that uh, that Biden finally got it done. So I think that's a, a great thing. And it's projected to save the government tens of billions of dollars in the coming years. And shame on these drug companies for going to court to try and uh, and stop this. We'll see. We'll see where it goes. But uh, I think this is a huge step in the right direction, personally. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. I was remiss in um, commenting on issues involving handsome people and not asking for the contribution of our very own handsome person, Kenneth. Of course, if there was an issue related to women, I would involve Christine in the conversation. If there was in, in, uh, an issue relating to radio people that use fake names, I would invite Matt Blaze to participate in the conversation. But um, sure enough, with the only handsome presidential candidate dropping out of the race, Francis Suarez, I certainly should have asked the view of our very own Kenneth. And uh, Kenneth, what is your view on uh, Francis Suarez dropping out? Are you sorry to lose one of your own? Yeah, you know, maybe he's following a, an illustrious modeling career now. Maybe you think gonna, so? Maybe he's going to uh, partake in that for Vogue or something. So now that all the handsome candidates are out of the race, are you shopping around for a new candidate now or are you hoping another handsome candidate emerges? I may have to enter the race, Frank. I may have to enter the race. (laughs) All right. Heaven forbid Francis Suarez may actually have to go down to Miami and do his job now. I know everybody that has an elective office that uh, they ignore as soon as they announce they're running for somebody else. They They shudder to think about the prospect of actually having to do your job. Ron DeSantis. Uh, Francis Suarez, all these other people running, but uh, we'll see. Tim Scott, you know, you go down the list, but we'll see where it goes. All right. Um, we're going to talk Jack the Ripper and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle in just a minute. Dr. Daniel Friedman is my guest. You know, Dr. Daniel Friedman is an interesting guy. We were talking about Jack the Ripper on the radio one day, 
And I think a caller called in and said, hey, you got to get a hold of Dr. Daniel Friedman. Sure enough, I said, let me look into this guy. I looked into him. The guy wrote a fascinating book involving Jack the Ripper and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, yes, that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, for the writer of the Sherlock Holmes books. And I said, why don't we just try and get him on the show? Sure enough, he's got a new book out uh, following up on the success of his previous book. It's called Doyle's World, Lost and Found, The Unknown Histories of Sherlock Holmes and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He wrote it with his father, I believe. And so we're going to talk about uh, Jack the Ripper. Who was he? Why have we not been able to solve this mystery in over a century? And what in the world does Sir Arthur Conan Doyle have to do with it? If you have questions about either uh, Jack the Ripper or Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, we will take them over the course of the next hour, 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight, and in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population and get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Tomorrow is the 135th anniversary of the Jack the Ripper killings in London. Why has the story of Jack the Ripper captivated the attention and the imagination of people for almost a century and a half? There's been all sorts of history books on this. There's been all sorts of books written about theories as to who Jack the Ripper actually is. There was even a Star Trek episode all about Jack the Ripper. There was a wonderful time travel movie that had Jack the Ripper and H.G. Wells actually being friends traveling to the 20th century together. It's actually very interesting, called Time After Time. But the most important aspect of this whole situation is why did we never figure out 
who Jack the Ripper was. And with all the things that have been ascribed to Jack the Ripper, what do we know about what he actually did? Well, on the eve of the 135th anniversary of the Jack the Ripper killings in London, we are very, very lucky to be joined by Dr. Daniel Friedman, a very accomplished doctor. He's a uh, pediatrician and assistant uh, clinical professor at uh, Northwell Hofstra University Medical School. He's also an author. He's written a couple of books delving into the worlds of Jack the Ripper and, you ready for this, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. When you think Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, you think mystery. And when you think mystery and Sherlock Holmes, certainly you think Arthur Conan Doyle. His latest book is uh, Doyle's World, Lost and Found, The Unknown Histories of Sherlock Holmes and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Very, very pleased to be joined by Dr. Daniel Friedman. Dr. Friedman, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Hey, thank you, Frank, for having me as a guest today. I'm really looking forward to talking about what happened 135 years ago and uh, what what really the reign of terror that Jack the Ripper created throughout Whitechapel, London, England, the world over. Well, I am uh, glad that you're joining me, and I hope you have a lot of time because I have a lot of questions for you about Jack the Ripper and about your uh, about your books. All right, um, before we talk about your research and about Jack the Ripper, tell me what sparked your interest initially. Was it the story of Jack the Ripper, or was it the life and times of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle? Which of those things first kind of set you on this? path of uh, researching and set you down this rabbit hole, which you've clearly delved deep into. Yeah, you know, a lot of people start off on the other side. They start with Jack the Ripper. They look for things. They try to figure out, make connections, who the Ripper is, and they, and they find a name and they research that person. Mine came the exact opposite. Mine came in the medical school libraries, reading articles about Arthur Conan Doyle and saying, wow, this guy is nothing what I thought he was. I mean, at first, I came across an article that told me he was a physician, and he wrote a a thesis paper. And then there was another article that told me he may be the perpetrator of the greatest hoax of the 20th century, the Piltdown Man. And every time I started reading about him, I said, this guy's fascinating. He's not just a writer. He's so much more. Let me, as a pediatrician, Trace him back. Let me go start in his early earliest days in, in Edinburgh and follow his growth and development from the time he's 5, 6, 7, 13, 20, and 30 and see where his life goes. And that's how I came up with the connection between Arthur Conan Doyle and Jack the Ripper. So I started on the opposite extreme. I started with Arthur Conan Doyle himself and saying, whoa, what's going on with his 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 timeline and that's where we came up with jack the ripper all right uh so just give us a little context before we get into your research and your theories what exactly does history tell us about jack the ripper i think most people i think just about everybody listening has heard the name jack the ripper and they know that he killed people Beyond that, fill us in on what is undisputed fact. What do we know about what Jack the Ripper actually did? Well, we know for certain that 135 years ago tomorrow, he made that excursion into Whitechapel where he killed at least four women. Now, that part we do know, 
But what most people may not realize is those four prostitutes that he selected as his targets weren't the young prostitutes ages 16, 20, 24. They were all 42, 45, 47-year-old women who are falling on very hard times. We call them the unfortunate class. That part we do know. We also know that he selected a specific time frame to be out in Whitechapel. He wasn't just doing this for an act of revenge or he wasn't doing it for robbery. He was looking for something. He wanted to do something particular to show the world there was a a method to his madness. It wasn't just going out to kill someone because he wanted revenge for, you know, a, a woman that scorned him. There was a specific purpose. We know that the way he did them were all very identical, neck slashings, mutilations to their bodies, and also positioning of their bodies and leaving little calling cards behind in the form of thimbles and handkerchiefs at the scene of the crime. So that part we do know. So the official body count is four. The, the, the lowest body count you can have is four. It can range up to a couple of dozen, but it's really the minimum has to be four. But they call the canonical five. They say there were five killings, although a lot of Jackson Ripper experts say that five is not correct. The fifth one was just a copycat, and it's just those first four. You, you know, it, it is interesting. We, we've been spending a lot of time looking at the Long Island serial killer and the Gilgo Beach uh, killings, and it looks like the Long Island serial killer might be guilty of as many as 10 slayings. He's already been connected to four. Why? So w- the point is there have been a lot of other killers over the years that have uh, killed many more than four people, and we're not talking about them 135 years later. What is it about the Jack the Ripper case and the Jack the Ripper killings that has so endured in the public consciousness? Why are we still talking about Jack the Ripper 135 years later? You know, that's the thing. This is like really the first shockwave that really hit London with the police being completely baffled. You have the entire, this is, this is a, you know, go, go beach, you know, uh, you know, fire Island area, long beach area, small, not really that populated. Uh, you can get away. You can put someone on the beach. No one's going to see you at 12 in the, in the morning. This was the biggest city in the world back in 1888. London was the biggest populated city in the world. There was nothing bigger. And Whitechapel was this, very active. At midnight, the streets weren't empty. People were just getting back from their jobs. There were social events happening. People were getting ready to go to work at two in the morning. You and you have a, a, a man going out into this area, like the, the most populated area of the world, saying, "I don't care who's out to get me. If there could be a police force out to get me, there could be." Uh, night watchmen out to get me, vigilance committees out to get me, amateur sleuths ready to get me. I'm I'm going to play with you all. I know how to outwit you, outmaneuver you, outthink you, and be four or five steps ahead of you. No matter how clever you think you are, I'm that good. That's the audacity, the bravery this person, this individual had when he went out there and did two murders on the same night within 45 minutes of each other 
with the two entire different police force, City of London Police Force and the Metropolitan Police Force, looking for him. And then after he commits two separate murders, goes out and writes on the wall in chalk a message challenging the police, saying the Jews are not to be the men who will be blamed for nothing. And he leaves the, one of the pieces of an apron from one of his victims and leaves it at that doorstep. He was toying with the entire city of London's police force when he did that. That's the type of, that's why this man, like with the Gilgo Beach, he didn't challenge the police. Right. You know, he did everything kind of secretly. Or another example would be a guy like H.H. H. Holmes, America's first serial killer. Uh, I want to get to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I want to ask you about H.H. H. Holmes in uh, in just a bit. I want to get back to the Jack the Ripper investigations and its failures if uh, in just a minute. But let's talk a little bit about Arthur Conan Doyle. I think a lot of people know that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle created the character of Sherlock Holmes. Beyond that, I don't know that a lot of our listeners know very much about him. What does history tell us about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle? Well, I'm going to start you back when he's, as I said, I, I was a pediatrician. I am a pediatrician. So I followed the growth and development of children from their earliest days until their adolescence and teenage years and, and so on. Arthur Conan Doyle, when he started out his life, when he was five years old, he lived in a very abusive household. And these are the things that go on to make a serial killer. The, the, the environment that you live, the, the friends that you have, the experiences that you have. So it's five. He lives in a very abusive household. His, his, his father's an abusive alcoholic. He's forced to live in a house down the road for him to go to school. In that school, he gets beaten by his teachers. He gets whipped. A year or two later, he gets sent off to another school in England, away from home. At that school, he's abused by his teachers. And he actually, is, he writes that he was the most abused child in that school, being beaten basically every day of his life. And he, and he had no money at this school, so he was already in a different class. And he, to, in order to, like, feed himself, he would learn how to tell ghost stories because he becomes later in life this great storyteller. That's the origins of him learning the art, the craft. He, he had to tell these stories to, in order to survive. He learns how to climb down water pipes to escape from the school, to go into town to buy his, uh, his tobacco. Later on, he goes into college and he learns how to pickpocket his teachers during final examinations. He goes on to uh, the Arctic where he learns how to be the strongest member of a ship. And instead of being that ship's physician as a, as a, as a doctor, he actually becomes one of the whalers and, and learns how to kill the, the seals and club their heads with the, with, the, with the clubs and he beats them up. And he actually beats up the people on the boat on the first day. And mm. this is something that he does everywhere he goes. On the first day of a job, at a new job, he beat up his boss. At the first day of a new school, he stabs his child in the belly. At the first day, when he walks into Portsmouth to his new home, he gets involved in a street fight where the police were called. Everywhere he goes, the first day he's somewhere, he has to prove his strength and, what he's, and how tough of a man he is. So this was something that was alerting, alarming to me as a red flag that something's going on with him, something is affecting him. And that was part of the original work that I had to work with, like what happens to a guy who is really physically and emotionally abused the way he was. 
And that's, of course, where the Jack the Ripper comes in. With, yeah, with him. We're talking with Dr. Daniel Friedman. Uh, he's written a couple of books about uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, The Strange Case of Dr. Doyle, A Journey into Madness and Mayhem, and Doyle's Words, A uh, Doyle's World Lost and Found, The Unknown Histories of Sherlock Holmes and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Take us back uh, to the Jack the Ripper investigation. Obviously, this was a big deal even back in the 1880s. It got a great deal of media attention at the time. I am sure this was a big priority for police and local law enforcement. How did the Jack the Ripper investigation go? Who was in charge of the Jack the Ripper investigation? And uh, what sort of course did they pursue in investigating it? Well, you know, this this whole thing with the with the Jack the Ripper investigation comes really it, it actually evolves here, and the whole entire crime scene investigation involves you know evolves with this one case. You know, I, one thing people may not realize, but the the sneaker, the way we know it today, was invented to sneak on the the to follow Jack the Ripper without him hearing their footsteps or their clunky regulation boots. Uh, You're kidding! Officers. Wow! Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. They would take like discarded tires, bicycle tires, and like. Uh, nailed them onto their shoes, on the soles of their shoes, so that no one could hear him sneaking up on them. That's one of the things they did. Um, they mobilized the police forces so that there would be a, 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 these uh, police officers in plain uniforms looking for him on the streets. Uh, vigilance committees were set up finally to look for Jack the Ripper. And London was going to do something that they haven't done in a long time, which was A, offer a reward for the capture of Jack Durper. They, they did not want to do that. And number two, they, Charles Warren, who was in charge of the, the police investigation, wanted to actually call out dogs, uh, Barnaby and Burgo, to track down the scent of Jack Durper. And although they didn't do that, uh, that was one of the plans was to try to use uh, uh, sluice dogs to follow the trail of Jack. There... So the entire way the, the, the yard was operating was changing rapidly to follow and find Jack the Ripper. What, publicly, what did Sir Arthur Conan Doyle think, or at least say that he thought, about Jack the Ripper and the Jack the Ripper investigation? Now, that was one of the things that actually got me to do my research on Jack the Ripper with with Arthur Conan Doyle. In, In 1893, Arthur Conan Doyle wrote an article about one of the letters that Jack the Ripper left behind called the Dear Boss Letter. And in that letter, he stated that Jack the Ripper was probably a midwife. Um, he didn't say it was a woman. People can put, consider that, that he must have meant a woman, but he meant a midwife, meaning what we call an obstetrician, an OBGYN these days, someone who performed gynecological surgeries. So I, I think that was, you know, that's what he really meant. People think he meant the woman, like, a, like a Jane the Ripper, but it's not true or Jill the Ripper. Um, he also said that the Ripper was probably someone who knew Americanisms, who understood the, the language of America, which, of course, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle did. One of his first stories, The American Tale, was written with American vernacular. So he was an expert on that type of, of word, wording, of, of using Americanisms. Um, he also thought that the Ripper was um, using a special type of paper uh, high-quality paper, uh, which is one of the theories another writer went after, uh, Patricia Cromwell. She was also looking for this uh, Peary paper connection. Uh, now, 
because one of the, the, the letters left behind were using this high-quality artist-grade paper. And, of course, there was a picture uh, done by uh, Walter Sickert in the 1910s called uh, What Shall We Do to Pay the Rent? And it looked like it was the fifth murder scene, which, you know, it's, it's basically taking this picture looks like a murder scene from Jack the Ripper. Let's go back. Who drew the picture? It's Walter Sickert. Therefore, he must be the murderer. But, again, that's basically going backwards and making things fit not going forward saying, here's Walter Sicker, what did he do in his life? How did he get to here? But interestingly enough, Arthur Conan Doyle was a student of William Rutherford. This William Rutherford was the model for a Professor Challenger in the Lost World. And that teacher in his own textbook, William Rutherford, and this is Doyle's teacher, stated that all of his students have to use the high quality artist grade paper made by Peary and Company, the same paper the Ripper used out of Aberdeen, uh, Scotland. So we know that Doyle, by by having had him as his professor and being working as a vivisectionist in his lab, in this professor's lab, cutting open dogs' windpipes, then opening up their abdomens and cannulating their livers, which is what the Ripper also did on murder number four, uh, we know that Doyle had to have had that paper access at the same time. Wow. All right. Uh, We're we're talking with Dr. Daniel Friedman, and uh, we're talking about Jack the Ripper and Arthur Conan Doyle. If you have questions, you can give us a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. When we come back, now keep in mind the period of time that we're talking about here. The uh, Jack the Ripper killings took place between 1888 and 1891. Arthur Conan Doyle was born in 1859, would have been about 28, 29 years old, about 30 years old when these Jack the Ripper killings took place. When we come back, I'm going to ask Daniel Friedman, and this is dealt with a little bit in his books. I'm going to ask Daniel Friedman if, and this may sound crazy to some people, but I'm going to ask the question, if there's a possibility that Arthur Conan Doyle was actually Jack the Ripper. We'll explore it in just a minute. 800-848-9222. My guest is Dr. Daniel Friedman. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
30 minutes past the hour. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morato, talking with uh, Dr. Daniel Friedman, who, along with his father, Eugene Friedman, is the author of the new book, Doyle's World, Lost and Found, The Unknown Histories of Sherlock Holmes and Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, talking not only about Arthur Conan Doyle, but of Jack the Ripper. Tomorrow is the 135th anniversary of some of these noteworthy killings. And uh, Dr. Friedman, I, I do wonder, how did that work out, writing now two books with your father? I'm guessing that uh, presented a pretty unique set of, of challenges and a, a unique working environment for two doctors. You know, my dad and I used to uh, travel together by car to work, and when we were writing The Strange Case of Dr. Doyle, the tour chapters have dialogue. So we used to actually like act out the parts in the car to create the the storyline that you read during the tour. It, it was really one of those good pleasures with my dad speaking. Oh, I would like to do this. And we would go back and it's like this is a good line. We should put this one in there. And and it really just became a way of us to you know to present our research you know in a, in a way that wasn't just you know a list of facts. We wanted to really create a story for people and. We know that's why we use the tour, because actually Arthur Conan Doyle went on a tour of Whitechapel with one of the police coroners in 1905, and we thought that would be a great way of doing this. And it was actually one of the highlights of my life, was working with my dad. Oh, that's wonderful. That's great. I love hearing that. Now, I understand you're actually in Florida now, when all eyes all over the world are on Florida because of this this storm, Hurricane Adalia. How uh, how is the weather? First of all, where in Florida are you now, and how's the weather over there? Well, I'm in Orlando right now, and it just started to uh, come down in the uh, uh, cats and dogs just like literally ten minutes ago. Uh, up until then, it was very nice and calm. Winds were very sweet, but right now we we hear the rain picking up. And we know in another about three hours, it's going to be really heavy downpours down here. All right. Well, stay safe. And uh, I hope uh, hope you make out OK with this storm. All right. You describe in your book the strange case of Dr. Doyle in talking about Arthur Conan Doyle, who I think most of us knew as a mystery writer and the father of Sherlock Holmes. I think at least I'll be honest, I did not realize that he was a medical doctor. But sure enough, in reading your book, I learned that he was. But you describe a man who was not only a medical doctor, but had a disregard for rules and regulations. You describe a man who experienced childhood trauma. You exper- you describe a man who had incredible physical strength. The million-dollar question, Dan, was Arthur Conan Doyle Jack the Ripper? Well, you mentioned a lot of things that Jack the Ripper has to be. I mean, Jack the Ripper had audacity to challenge the police. And he actually, if you, as some people will tell you, some of those murders where he was, he, when he was doing his murders were in corners. He trapped himself in there. That meant if a police officer should happen to see him in the act, he knew there was only one way out, and that was to fight off or kill whoever was going to capture him. So this had, he had no qualms about doing that. This shows you. And... Where he did, like today, murder number one is going to be tomorrow night, 135 years ago. No one heard a scream from any of his victims. They were all silent. This guy had power beyond, this guy could strangle someone without anybody making a peep. And he could hold that person's neck tightly until they died in his arms. And then he would put them down on the ground, 
sever their necks from ear to ear, because this is a ritual that had to be completed uh, exactly the way it was written, and then do the abdominal mutilations. So you don't, you can't have a hundred pound weakling doing this. I think some people like Aaron Kosminski as a, as a, as a, as a uh, potential uh, suspect, but he was less than a hundred pounds in anorexic. He could never hold down these street fighting women. You know, we need a guy like Arthur Conan Doyle with the power. But one thing seemed for certain, whoever the Ripper was had to have been a Mason and not just any type of Freemason. And just, you know, this is not like, this is a rogue Freemason. It wasn't like the Freemasons around the world were going to kill people. I mean, it's like, you know, you can have a rogue physician, a doctor, who go out and kill people. Or you can have a rogue architect that we see in Gilgo Beach going out to kill people. It wasn't that, you know, they, they do this as a, as a group or an organization. The Freemasons are, they do charity and goodwill. And there are people's communities helping out. But it just so happens that a third-degree Mason has to do a specific, back in the 1880s, that is, had to do a, a ritual, a, a play of the, the masterworks of Hiram Abiff and his murder. And sometimes serial killers will read something and they, they get this ID fix, it's called, where they have to act that out to completion so they can go on with their normal lives. And I believe that's what happened here. Because in 1887, right before the Ripper crimes, Arthur Conan Doyle joins the Freemasons in January. But yet... Two months later, he rises to the rank of a third-degree master mason. He does all their rituals, learns all their secret codes. And after he attains the rank of third-degree master mason, he basically doesn't do anything else with, the, with his Phoenix Lodge. He, and they were celebrating the 100th anniversary of a hospital, raising funds. For, he didn't do any of this as a physician. He didn't help with the raising of funds for the, the Portsmouth Hospital. He didn't help with their organization. And... Two years after his, actually a year and a half after he joins the Mason, he actually quits. And that's, as any Mason who's listening knows, you, you don't quit the Freemasons. It's something that's just really not done. And he did a formal letter of a demission to get out of the Masons. But I, the reason why I'm actually saying it's a Masonic ritual, and this is one thing that I, the code I broke when I, when I did my research on this, is because each of the of the well, there's four murders, but the third murder was he was the Ripper was basically going to be caught in the act, so he fled the scene. He didn't complete it, but murders one, two, and three actually follow a Masonic ritual, and I don't really think anybody's ever put that together before. So, and that's why I know, yeah. So it it sounds like the answer to my question is whether Arthur Conan Doyle is Jack the Ripper is probably. I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say Arthur Conan Doyle is the Ripper. He meets all the criteria and the psychological profile, and he had some type of, uh, and, you know, there is no motiveless murder. You have to have a motive. Something has to be there. And in his case, I do believe that the motive actually is actually an act of revenge, that he believed that his father, Charles, was who was admitted to mental hospitals at the age of 42 for, quote, unquote, alcoholism. Actually, I believe he thought he was a victim of a tertiary syphilis, and that's a sexually transmitted disease one could get from prostitutes of London. Um, and, of course, I believe that Arthur Conan Doyle, by extension, thought that his father transmitted, because back in the day, back in the 1880s, even at Arthur Conan Doyle's medical school of the U University of Edinburgh, it was taught that a father can transmit to his son the, the syphilitic germ. Through your, through your own 
genetic makeup without going through the mother. And I think he thought because he had jaw pain, he had a rash that looked like psoriasis, which is actually, as most doctors know, the rash of psoriasis can mimic the rash of syphilis. And he was having headaches at the age of 12 years old. He got electroconvulsive therapy as a child for them. And he even experimented on himself with a medicine that actually almost killed him. He, the, the person he was working for actually had to save his life. Um, and, and actually, also in Arthur Conan Doyle's thesis paper that he wrote literally in a month, time is a genius. He actually writes that he's experimenting on himself in his own medical school thesis for his PhD, what we call it, his MD degree. He writes that I'm taking a medicine in twice the recommended doses uh, and it hasn't done any ill effect on me. So we know that he was taking a medicine that was only meant to be given to syphilitic patients and he was taking that medicine at the age of 25. So he must have thought he had the disease, which of course, if he was under the impression that his father gave it to him and his father was incarcerated in mental hospitals at the age of 42 and never left. He, was, wow. he died in the mental hospital. He never got out of, never went back home again, the age 42 is going to strike you. And that is why all the victims you see of the Ripper killings, all those four prostitutes were between the, those ages of the older 42 to 47 year old women. They weren't 16 or 17 or 18. I mean, you get a picture. If you're, if you're a serial killer, you're looking to go kill prostitutes in the East End, you're not going to look for the 45 year old girl or 47. You're going to look for a 20 year old it doesn't make any sense. And there was no sexual assault on any of these victims. They were just, every one of them had a surgical procedure done on them. You know, the taking out of a kidney, surgically precisely done. Wow. This, the taking out of a uterus with one swoop of the knife, and he knew exactly where to go. We know, now you got a guy who's doing a Masonic ritual and who's a physician who's strong enough to murder four people without them making a peep. You know, you, you start getting rid of a lot of other suspects by the virtue of what you need to be to be this person, to be Jack. Of course, Doyle possessed all of them. That is wild. 800-848-9222. Gene in Manhattan has a question. Hello, Gene. Hi there, Frank. Uh, I had always heard that Walter Sickert had uh, done that because he seemed to have the right timing outdoors uh, to be uh, uh, enabled to do that. And he, I believe, was single. And I don't know what all else there was involved with it. But yeah. He did rather curious kinds of paintings, evidently. Yeah, very interesting question, Gene. I- I've heard that theory, too, Dan, that uh, Walter Sickert, the, the Impressionist painter, is one of the people suspected of being Jack the Ripper. What did your research show about Walter Sickert? Yeah, again, you know, and that's the, the premise of one of the, another writer out there who actually used work that was based, think about 45 years ago, they, they, they mentioned that it was a painting called uh, What We Shall Do to Pay the Rent, and that showed the indoor butchering. Now, that was, remember, that was an indoor picture drawn by Walter Sickert, which I have seen. And quite honestly, it just, to me, just looks like a man who's sad about who's depressed about what's going on in his life. The woman on the bed is in a position, but there doesn't seem to be any blood splatter on the wall. She's just a woman naked on a bed. But then again, the the other connection with Walter Sickert was about the paper, that period paper we mentioned. The problem is that you also have to have the physical strength. to. And that picture was done in the, I think, in 19... 
10, maybe in that range, with the townhouse, the, the Camden paintings. Uh, so it's, it's years later than the Ripper crimes were done. That's it's 25 years later. But you have to be a, a, a third-degree master mason, and you have to possess the physical power to subdue four women. Mm. And you also have to have medical. I mean, there was no unnecessary cuts done by the Ripper. The, the, the Ripper was trained surgically, that is for sure. As I was mentioning, one sweep of the knife of the uterus, he knew how to take out a kidney. It wasn't done by a slaughter guy because they would never have known how to do these procedures. As a matter of fact, on one of the murders, when you do a slashing, you kind of go up to up up and down with the knife, but the ripper did not. He actually started at the ziploid process of the chest and went down and avoided the the belly button, the navel, with the knife and went around it. That's a surgical procedure that doctors do in the OR even today. So Sicker as a candidate, they basically it was as I said, they went from back to front. They said, we have a picture. Drawn by Walter Sickert, let's go see if he could be the Ripper. They didn't connect all the dots here. They didn't get all the things that he has to be. And again, my connections, too, as I mentioned, I needed to make sure that Doyle, too, because I didn't want to have an empty theory that Doyle had, you know, used the paper, too, because, you know, his father was an artist. I had to make sure that Doyle really had artist-grade period paper. And in his professor uh, Rutherford's textbook on page nine of pathology, it states, I need all my students, and Doyle was his vivisectionist in his, in his secret lab. He was that man's lab assistant. Must use period paper, the quality of paper that the other book is mentioning that Walter Sicker would have had too. So the same way I went forward to find this information. Other people have gone backward to see if he's had it too. But I don't think Walter Sickert had the power or the knowledge or strength or the physical torment that Doyle had mm. to beat a guy going out of the streets at one in the morning, two in the morning, killing people. Uh, it, he doesn't see, meet that psychological profile. Interesting. W- what about some of the alternative theories to your own about the identity of Jack the Ripper? I've heard everything from Prince Albert Victor uh, to the attorney Montague John Druitt, who, after he died, the uh, the killing stopped right away to a number of other people. Do you lend any credence to the possibility that it may have been someone else? Uh, well, I will tell you right now, I'm not going to lie to you. When I first started this book, when I, when I first started researching Jack the Ripper, I had to actually get rid of my first notion, which was I actually thought it was William Gull, the, uh, the Queen's Royal Physician. Uh, I saw a movie when I was a kid. I think it was Michael Caine still was starring as the, 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 the Queen's Physician, William Gull. But then I said, let me go see, you know, maybe he's it because they had the movie. It's possible. It makes sense. Maybe it, maybe it was the prince. Maybe it was. Uh, he, it, but then I said, no, he was over in, in Scotland at Balmoral Castle. So it can't be the prince. He wasn't around. He was entertaining dignitaries, dignitaries from around the world at the time. Um, and then William Gull, when I looked up his information at age 71, which he would have been at the time of the murders, he already suffered a, a stroke, a debilitating stroke of his right dominant side. So he had a paralyzed right arm in 1887. The murders happened in 1888. So unless he was, you know, ca- carrying his arm and cradling it down the streets as he's subduing a woman who's half his age, and then with one hand mutilating her with, you know, and then, of course, you know, suffocating her with one arm, his left non-dominant arm, it really can't be him either. So I had to get rid of him as a suspect. 
I mean, I've seen other suspects like Neil Cream, who, you know, basically on the scaffold said, I am, and he didn't say Jack, but he was going to say Jack. And, um, but he was in a, a, the Illinois penitentiary back in the time when the Ripper was doing his killing. So a lot of people that I've heard, you know, or Aaron Kosminski, who I said was a hundred pound weakling, you know, you have to have, you just can't say I have a motive. You have to have the, you know, you have to have the strength, the athleticism, the intelligence to do what is necessary to kill people without, you know, them screaming. And obviously Kosminski could never have held down a, a woman who was in a bar fight the night before. One of the women was in jail the, the same day of her death. I mean, she was, she was out on the streets getting drunk and fighting people. I mean, these are street fighting women. They were not, you know, pushovers. They weren't the lovely ladies of London. <laughs> uh, you mentioned a little earlier, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Dr. Daniel Friedman. He's written two books about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Doyle's World Lost and Found, and The Strange Case of Dr. Doyle, A Journey into Madness and Mayhem, in which he postulates in the afterword that there's a very strong possibility that Arthur Conan Doyle might have actually been the notorious serial killer, Jack the Ripper. A little earlier, Dan, you mentioned H.H. Holmes. Uh, This is somebody that's been described as America's first serial killer. And uh, Dr. Henry Howard Holmes committed multiple murders between 1891 and 1894 in the United States. I've heard for years that there was a possibility that H.H. Holmes was Jack the Ripper. It's very interesting in looking at the name H.H. Holmes And we're talking about Arthur Conan Doyle, the man who created Sherlock Holmes in the context of this discussion of Jack the Ripper. What do we know about H.H. Holmes and Arthur Conan Doyle's relationship with him, if any? What do we know about the possibility of H.H. Holmes being Jack the Ripper? By the way, um, I think several descendants of H.H. Holmes have actually said that they believe their ancestor is Jack the Ripper, based on a series of diary entries where Holmes purportedly outlines his involvement with these Whitechapel murders. What do we know about H.H. Holmes with respect to Jack the Ripper and Arthur Conan Doyle? Uh, First, before I even answer that question, just keep in mind exactly what we were talking about before with the Gilgo Beach murders. You know, like your things, the way you find someone, the way good detective work goes is that you you find a pattern and you use that pattern because emos really of a serial killer they do not change now h.h Holmes was a serial killer that's no doubt and but he wasn't the ripper you know his modus of operandi of doing things was completely different than jack the rippers you know holmes wanted to do his evil deeds for financial gain and it wasn't for revenge you know he would he kill people by you know locking them in airtight vaults? I don't know if you heard this, or he poisoned them with gas, or he tortured them or burned them alive. This man loved to hear the screams of his victims. He loved to hear the screams. That's the thing. He loved to hear screams. He he also like, would also chop up their body parts and sell them to med. He would sell their body parts to medical schools. He didn't just take them home and not do anything with them. He would sell the medical schools. But just like um, who was it? Burke and Hare from Edinburgh did the same thing. He also would take out advertisements and uh, legitimate advertisements saying, I want you to come to work for me in my, my special castle in Chicago. And then when he got them into his, his home, he would take out ins- large insurance policies on them and make himself the sole beneficiary for the money because everything to him was 
torture and making money. Jack the Ripper did not do this at all. He didn't work inside. He wasn't looking for money. Yes, Jack the Ripper did take the rings off of his, some of his victims, but a ring represents fidelity, loyalty, love. So by stripping a person's finger of their rings means you're, you're not, you're, you have no fidelity. You're, you, you're, you, you cheated. You, you, you did something that wasn't right between a marriage, which is what basically Holmes, Jack the Ripper was doing. And the Ripper carefully selected his victims and he killed them in the streets of London for, and, leave, and left their bodies for the police or any passerby to find. This was not the way H.H. H. Holmes worked. You know, he, the, 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 the H.H. Holmes worked inside. He, he feared the police may, they may arrest him. He worked in secret. The Ripper didn't care if the police were, the vigilance committees, amateur sleuths, he didn't care who was out on his tail. He was, in a, he was out on the streets. He did two murders in the same day and then wrote a message on the wall on the same day. He didn't care who was there looking for him, but H.H. H. Holmes did. Wow. That's why you have to say that any theory that says H.H. H. Holmes is the Ripper can't be, it, the M.O.s are completely different. And if you were looking for that, that M.O., like they do in the Gilgo Beach murder, you would have, he doesn't match. You would never have found the guy. But because his M.O.s always worked the same way, he poisoned, he listens, he wanted torture. That's how you found this guy. You know, that's how you, that's how you find the serial killer. The, the, the Ripper and, and Holmes don't match up. They're not the same thing. Fascinating. Well, uh, when we come back, we're going to talk with Dr. Daniel Friedman about what we can learn from the Sherlock Holmes stories about Arthur Conan Doyle's potential involvement in these Jack the Ripper killings. We'll also try and squeeze in as many of your calls as we can here. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. is here. He is the author of the new book, Doyle's World, Lost and Found. It's available on Amazon and uh, most places that books are sold. In his previous book, The Strange Case of Dr. Doyle, he puts forward for the first time the theory that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the man that uh, created Sherlock Holmes, may have actually been one of the most notorious serial killers in history. Dan, why didn't they catch this guy? Arthur Conan Doyle was certainly a very well-known guy. He was obviously knighted. He was involved in politics. He was uh, very well-known throughout London. Surely, given all the similarities that you found, it must, must have occurred to somebody in law enforcement to look into the potential similarities. Why didn't he get caught? Uh, as you know, first of all, Jack the Ripper, when the season named Jack the Ripper on this one, Jack the Ripper was always a step or two ahead of the police. He knew how to cover his tracks. He knew how to elude them. He knew where to hide. He knew where. And he also stopped. Like 
a lot of serial killers keep going. They and they and they leave clues that really they they that they shouldn't have lasted. Alerts the police what to where to go and who to find. Jack the Ripper did it so cleverly and so uh, intelligently. It was impossible. As I said, I only found it going the opposite direction. You know, I I wasn't looking for Jack the Ripper. I was looking for Conan Doyle. But he did things where he was able to really cloak everything perfectly. And he had and he knew how to conduct and carry out a murder. I mean, you got to remember Arthur Conan Doyle, to me, the greatest mystery writer of all time. Uh, he invented, basically reinvented the genre. I mean, Edgar Allan Poe started detective stories, but this is a guy who really modernized it. He knew how and what to do to make sure you don't get caught. And I love the fact that Sherlock Holmes always says, if I wasn't a detective, I would have made a great uh, uh, criminal. You know, he, he sees the two the dualities of things. You know, I could have done this, but I could have done that. Doyle's the same way. He knew how to arrange everything. And, and that's why I kind of like, you know, even in the Sherlock Holmes tales. I mean, yeah, yes, he's the writer of Sherlock Holmes. If you read those stories carefully, you know, Sherlock Holmes is just an amateur consulting detective, yet he makes fun of Scotland Yard. I mean, could you imagine that he actually writes in the second Sherlock Holmes stories that he'd rather have a mongrel dog than the entire London <laughs> police force? Uh, I don't think Scotland Yard would have been very happy to read that, you know, he to be compared to a dog. I mean, this is what he writes. He he makes sure that Sherlock Holmes is always better than the, the inspectors that surround them. The best of the best. And he always says Lestrade and Gregson are the best of a bad lot. That's actually a quote from the first Sherlock Holmes story. He's not very appreciative of the London police because he knows that they're not at that point in time. He knows that they're unorganized and they weren't very good. And he was pointing out all their faults. And well, yeah, that, that's why to me, if you're going out of your way to sort of smack them in the face, the the police, it would seem like the police would have a vested interest in, if only to save face, examining every possible connection that Arthur Conan Doyle had with Jack the Ripper. Yeah, and and the fact is that Arthur Conan Doyle was just so good at what he did. Uh, he made sure that he was uh, a known face throughout London afterwards. Remember when the when the when the Ripper crimes were occurring in 1888, he was an unknown writer. No one knew who he was. He wasn't living in London at the time. He was living in, in a suburb. He wasn't there. No, he wasn't popular until three years later. Until he had his the, another story come out. Uh, the scandal in Bohemia. So we already had another one, Sign of the Four, and that also was a financial flop. So he didn't get really popular until his third Sherlock Holmes tale. And by then, the Ripper crimes were already three years gone. Uh, and then he made sure to be loved and, 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 and embraced by everybody, every committee, every, every society out there. Uh, but that at the time of the murders, he was not that guy. Uh, he was, as a matter of fact, I, I love the fact that when I was doing my initial research, Doyle was investigated by the police two times, um, one time for doing a hoax against the mayor of Birmingham, uh, England, sending out fake invitations, uh, calling them out to a, a party that didn't exist on the mayor's behalf. Another one was for killing his own future brother-in-law. Uh, and I think he actually con- makes an almost confession to this in another story he writes where he gave a, quote unquote, uh, patient of his too much medication, killed him 
accidentally, uh, then rushed his uh, burial to escape uh, being uh, suspected for uh, it, it doing the wrong thing. And that's actually a true story. I mean, and then uh, to make sure nothing, no, no, uh, Ill, uh, no ill effects from this, he marries that person's sister. Wow. My goodness. Fascinating, fascinating uh, conversation. You got to come back soon. Want to encourage everybody to pick up both of these books The Strange Case of Dr. Doyle and Doyle's World, both written by Dr. Daniel Friedman and Eugene Friedman. Dr. Friedman, thank you very much. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Well, it's hard to believe, but we are less than two weeks away from September 11th. And, you know, obviously those of us that were in New York, but I I think even if you were in New York, but I I think certainly if you were in New York on September 11th in 2001, which I was, you always sort of have a special place in your heart for what occurred that day. And it is creating a great deal of controversy that President Biden is going to observe next month's 22nd anniversary of the worst terrorist attack on U.S. soil at an Alaska military base with service members and their families. That was the announcement from the White House yesterday. President Biden will not participate in any of the observances at September 11th memorial sites in New York City, Virginia, or Pennsylvania. Instead, the president is going to stop in Alaska for a September 11th observance at joint base uh, at a, a joint air force base in Anchorage on his way back to Washington after a trip in Asia. Biden is scheduled to travel to India from September 7th to September 10th to attend a summit with other world leaders followed by a stop in Vietnam. Vice President Kamala Harris and her husband are going to participate in the annual observance at the National September 11th Memorial Museum in Lower Manhattan. The First Lady, Jill Biden, will lay a wreath at the 9-11 Memorial at the Pentagon. So this is interesting. Biden, in doing this, is becoming the first president since September 11th And that includes, obviously, Bush, Obama, and Trump, 
Democrat and Republicans alike, and himself, because he was president the last two years, he's becoming the first president in history to not be either in New York or Washington or at some sort of memorial at one of the sites where the attacks took place. And some people are a little upset about this. Now, his wife is going to be laying a wreath at the Pentagon. His vice president is going to be at a memorial service in New York. The um, So, uh, I'm curious what you think about this. I guess the, uh, the there was one other instance. I'm looking at what all the presidents did going back to 2002. In 2015, President Obama participated in a moment of silence on the White House lawn before going to Fort Meade in Maryland to recognize the military's work to protect the country. But he was in Washington. So, so far, as I best I can tell, every president has been in either New York, Washington, or uh, Pennsylvania on September 11th. Does it matter? Does it matter? Uh, Harris is going to be in New York. The first lady is going to be at the Pentagon. So it's not as and he's look, he's going to be with military members and their families in Alaska. It's not as if he's forgetting about this. Do you think this is important that he be in New York or Washington, D.C., or does it not matter? My view is that if you're the president, there's an enormous amount of symbolism that comes with that job. And, you know, they call it using the bully pulpit. They call it uh, focusing the eyes of the world on whatever you think is important. Is this the kind of thing that the president should be doing? I think it is. I think it is. Look, it doesn't make a difference in terms of what you're paying in taxes. It doesn't make a difference in terms of whether the air is safe to breathe or the water is safe to drink or whether your child is dying from an opioid overdose or not. All the problems that exist will still exist, whether he's in Alaska, Delaware, Washington, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, Pennsylvania, wherever. doesn't really matter. I do think, though, there's some importance to the symbolism of Biden being at or whoever the president happens to be being at one of the sites that were attacked on September 11th. I'm curious what you think. Should President Biden be in New York or in D.C. to mark the 9-11 anniversary there or does it not matter? 800-848-9222. That's the question. A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. So President Biden is going to be visiting a military base in Alaska and will be the first president in 22 years to not mark the 9-11 anniversary at one of the scenes of the attack. I don't think it's a great look. And again, you can't say his administration is forgetting about it. His wife is going to be in Washington. His own vice president is going to be in New York. So maybe it doesn't matter. I just don't know why you would do this. I mean, certainly you could have arranged your travel schedule to India and Vietnam to make sure you were in New York or Washington, D.C. on September 11th. 
I, I don't know why you would invite this kind of criticism. Uh, whatever you think about Biden, whether you love Biden or hate Biden, I would love for you to view this situation objectively, whether you're even if you're a Biden fan and you think, well, you know what? I like Biden. I voted for Biden, but yeah, he should be in New York or Washington, D.C. on September 11th. I'd like to hear from you. If you're someone that doesn't like Biden, you didn't vote for him. You think he should be impeached. You think he's the worst president of all time. But you think, well, you know, if I'm being honest, it doesn't matter where he is on September 11th. He's just as much the president or not the president at wherever he happens to be. I'd love to hear from you, too. So that's what I am big with. Intellectual honesty. I'm not into seeing the world through ideological eyes. And that's why I'd love to hear from you. 800-848-9222. We are keeping an eye on Hurricane Idella, which is approaching Florida and is forecast to become a Category 4 hurricane at uh, landfall. I have uh, a lot of friends in Florida right now and some family members in Florida right now, both those that are visiting and both those that live there. And uh, they so far say it's just some rain. So far, depending on where they happen to be. But uh, I have asked... Everybody to keep us informed. So we'll see where we go from here. One of the people that uh, was commenting on this is obviously a critic of President Biden. Sebastian Gorka, a nationally syndicated radio talk show host, former aide to President Trump, and uh, somebody that, uh, look, President Biden could do anything and Seb Gorka would find find a way to say something negative about him. But this is what Sebastian Gorka said of President Biden. Well, if, if I were Joe Biden, I'd be hiding in Alaska as well, because unlike real patriots like Rudy Giuliani, like President Trump, who go to New York, who President Trump and Rudy actually went to ground zero after the attacks, this man, this doddering individual who detests America, who's opened our borders, who's sacrificed Afghanistan to the loss of 13 of our war fighters. That man knows what would happen if he dared show his face in Manhattan on September 11th. He knows what the people of New York would shout at him, that he is a traitor, he hates America, and that's why he's going to hide in Alaska. I don't believe that at all. I mean, I think that's Sebastian Gorka just being partisan. I think uh, President Biden uh, does not hate America. You can think he's not a good president. I certainly don't think he hates America. I I also think it's ridiculous what he said there. I mean, if you're worried about the the people of New York, which voted about 80 percent for Biden, by the way. But if you're worried about the people of New York greeting you with a Bronx cheer and telling you where to go, then you do it. You do something in Washington, D.C. You do something at the Pentagon. You do a controlled ceremony. You lay a wreath like the First Lady is trying to do here or, or is planning on doing. I don't buy what Seb Gorka said for a minute. I don't think he's hiding out in Alaska at all. I think it's simply a function of this was the easiest thing for him to do logistically. And they kind of they planned these trips and then he realized, oh, wait a minute, I should be in America on September 11th. How can I arrange my schedule to make sure I am in America? Oh, OK, there's something in Alaska that I can go to. Let's plan something around that. I think it's as simple as logistics. That being said, I think you should arrange your schedule to be in New York, Pennsylvania or Washington, D.C. I think it matters. I do. Maybe you disagree. I think it matters. 
800-848-9222. Let me begin with Jim in Afton, New York. Hello, Jim. Hey, Frank. I think Gork is right to a degree, but I think they're keeping him in a controlled small event, you know, just so he don't mess up, you know. I think he's why, senile. Why, why couldn't he be at a controlled small event in Washington, D.C. at the Pentagon or in Pennsylvania? Uh, you're right. You know what I mean? But I, I, it's just that I don't understand. I, the Alaska thing is just, you know. I don't. I think it's just a small controlled event to hide them. You're right; they could do a small controlled event in the Pentagon or in Washington. But uh, I think he. I think they're so over the top worried about him doing something stupid. They're they're just trying to keep him away from as much people as possible. Okay. Well, fair, fair enough, Jim. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. I don't buy that necessarily either, because I think you could keep Biden away from people in Washington or in New York. I mean, he doesn't really answer that very many questions now. So why does he have to answer them if he's if he's in Pennsylvania? I don't think he does. He could do something simple, something somber. It's not you know for whatever reason we care about anniversaries that end in a zero or a five. It's not a twentieth anniversary. It's not a twenty fifth anniversary. He could just do a somber lay a wreath, just like his wife is doing at the Pentagon. And uh, say a silent little prayer, something along those lines, or just silently attend a ceremony the way Kamala Harris is doing. So I don't think it's a function of, oh, they're worried about people are going to finally see once and for all that he has no idea what he's doing. I don't buy that. I, I really do think my theory is the the one – obviously it's my theory, but it's the one that makes the most sense. It, it's just logistically – it didn't make sense for him to go to New York or Washington. That being said, I think he should have adjusted his schedule to be in New York, Washington, or maybe Pennsylvania. David in the Bronx, what do you think? Yeah, okay. Um, your last caller and Seb Gorka are ridiculous. This notion that President Biden never goes out in public is not true. He was just at a public uh, elementary school a few days ago. I don't understand this kind of hostility, and it's unfortunate that we have to take advantage of a serious event to attack President Biden. I'll say this, and this is going to be controversial. We have to reach a point where we don't have to drop everything to celebrate, not celebrate, to memorialize this event because nobody travels to Pearl Harbor on December 7th anymore. How many years after 9-11 do we have to wait before we have to have these huge memorial events that honestly, this happened, what, 22 years ago? I don't know. Is it, do we have to do it 50 years from now? There has to be a point where this becomes just another observance and not some huge public event. You know, the amount of money that's spent on the Secret Service protecting the vice president and the first lady for these events is a lot of money. Why do we have to keep doing this? Uh, you know, we don't have a, a like I said, for Pearl Harbor. I don't understand. How many years is it going to be before the president has to drop everything he's doing? Because what you're saying is that he should not go or cut short a summit with, inter- with world leaders. That's very important. Our position in Asia is very important. Our position with Vietnam is very important because of what's going on with China right now. I feel the president understands that it's more important for him to show his face there and to stop in Alaska, which is American territory, with our troops 
and, 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 and do the memorial there. As long as it's on United States soil, I don't understand what the big deal is. And I do think we have to step away at some point from this 9-11 obsession that we have. And I was affected by it as much as anybody else. But it's been 22 years. How many more years do we have to keep doing this? Well, look, I mean, I think maybe forever, right? I, I mean, if it is the worst terrorist attack in American history, is there something wrong with remembering that every year on September 11th in a, in a solemn manner? I mean, it really is a day that changed the whole future of the country, isn't it? Pearl Harbor did that too, Frank. Well, I, I'm Pearl Harbor. For, yeah, <laughs> let, let's remember that as well. Yeah, but we, we do remember it. It's, you know, it's marked off on the calendar. I mean, a hundred years from now, do you really think the president of the United States is going to take time to travel to New York or, or Pennsylvania a hundred years from now? When are we going to realize that this, as bad as it was, that at some point we have to stop this morbid obsession with 9 slash 11? I, I think it's, it's uh, at some point, maybe it's too soon now. But at some point in our lifetime, this is going to have to become just like every other day, just like just like December 7th, just like some other tragic events in American history. At some point, it's going to have to be normalized and not more more morbidly celebrated like the way that we're doing it. now. But the, the difference between Pearl Harbor and September 11th is President Biden was was alive when September 11th happened. And he was not alive when uh, I mean, he was not alive when Pearl Harbor took place. So it was, um, you know, I think there is a difference when you're viewing something as a historical event that you have read about and that you're aware of and versus something that you you actually experienced in real time, which Biden did uh, it, September 11th and which a lot of Americans did. I think it's a it's just a different ball game. For something you were alive for versus something you read about. I mean, isn't there a little bit of a difference there that you can see? I, I understand what you're saying, Frank. I, I don't think you're being unreasonable. But when you listen to people like Gorka and that last caller, I mean, come on. The, the idea that Joe Biden hates America or that he's no, hiding, no, I, I don't buy that. Joe I don't Biden buy that at all. It's very I, popular I, in New York City. I was out in the park the day that CNN declared that he was the winner of the election, people came out into the streets when it was announced, and it was like a party. He is more popular probably in Manhattan than anywhere else. So this idea that he wouldn't come to Manhattan because he's afraid no, of No, no, I, I, I said that's the furthest thing I said. I, I think Gorka yeah. well, you know, you was kind of making that. Some, making that up, honestly. But um, I, uh, yeah, I mean, he's very popular in, uh, in New York City. That's, that's a fact. 800-848-9222-800-848-9222. Lou is on Long Island. Hello, Lou. Yes, uh, good morning um, to your prior caller. Uh, how long do we honor the dead? Did he lose a family member? And then tell me how long he wants a lost family member to be honored. I guarantee he did not. I did. So I would like this memorial to go on in perpetuity, no end to it, until there are no people that left alive that can actually remember it or saw it on TV or lost a family member. 
Yeah, well, Lou, I, first of all, I don't think that, um, uh, you know, I have no idea what David's situation was. Uh, I think, you know, he was in New York. I think everybody in New York, maybe he didn't have a family member, but at least everybody in New York knew someone that died on uh, on September 11th. So I don't want to make it sound like he doesn't care about, uh, about the lives that were lost that day. And also, even if he uh, didn't have a family member, I, I don't think he loses the ability to have an opinion on um you know on how certain I events uh, i don't everyone has an opinion i think his opinion is very callous yeah I, I mean i i think it's an incredibly important event right and i think it's something it's that what, it's only 20 something years well, i mean it's not like it's pearl harbor 70 80 years ago and and that's you know? kind of the point that i was making about the difference between this and it's pearl harbor our memory it is, and I think at the same time, we're in a very rare place in American history, thanks to the call, Lou. And the rare place in American history is there are enough people that remember it happening and experienced it and lost people and wondered whether or not their friend or their husband or their loved one was going to come home. But you also have a substantial amount of people that were either not alive or or don't remember it, and you are a very kind of sweet spot in American history right now where you have enough people who were alive and experienced it as eyewitnesses and enough people that have either no recollection of it because they were too young or weren't alive for it, and there can be a substantial amount of education that goes on from Group A to Group B. That being said, and that's why I do think it's important that we still remember this, especially now, that being said, does it matter where the president is when his vice president is in New York and his wife is in Washington, D.C., both at very, very solemn ceremonies commemorating the attack? My view is yes, it does matter. Is it just symbolism? Of course it is. Symbolism counts for something as far as I'm concerned. All right, we're going to continue with your calls in just a moment. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. on this date in 1988 that Danzig, formed by former Misfits lead singer Glenn Danzig, 
released their first self-titled debut album. And the song Mother, which you could hear right now, became a, not a major hit, but a minor hit when it was re-released five years later. So here we are, remembering that fateful day back in 1988. All right, uh, going to get back right back to the phones in just a minute. Meantime, if you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on the show, you can join the Facebook group. Uh, just go to Facebook and type Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. And in addition to listing the music that we play each and every, you know, each and every break, we will also uh, discuss the subjects that are being discussed on the show. So if you have feedback, criticism, whatever the case may be, that's the place to do it. All right. 800-848-9222. Discussing the situation involving the announcement from the White House yesterday that uh, President Biden is not going to be in New York, Pennsylvania, or Washington, D.C. for the September 11th anniversary. Does it matter? So far, most people seem to agree with me that it does. Uh, Also, on a much, much lighter note, the sandwich that I was contemplating stealing from the refrigerator yesterday because uh, it was unlabeled and that I left there because I thought it might belong to Christine. I ate that sandwich before the show, and I must say it was quite delicious. And um, I try not to eat sandwiches because I don't like to have the bread and I try not to have the carbs and so forth. But for whatever the reason, I was just particularly hungry today. Just had one. I did only had one meal and it was kind of a minor meal and I've been running around and I had worked up quite an appetite. And I'm thinking, all right, do we leave this sandwich to languish here unlabeled in perpetuity? Or do I take the sandwich and eat the bread which I shouldn't have? Well, I ate the sandwich. So I'm going to make an effort to uh, spend a little extra time on the treadmill tomorrow. We'll see where it goes. 800-848-9222. Ryan listening on WCBM in Baltimore. Hello, Ryan. Hey, how you doing, Frank? Um, um, I, I don't think it's any coincidence that he's, he's not going to be at any of these locations. They want to keep him as far away from a microphone as possible. Um, just for example, he went to Hawaii. Look how long it took him to get to Hawaii. And then he tells these people he understands where they're coming from because he almost had a kitchen fire that almost burnt his uh, stingray up. Right. So or when he- let's say I agree with you, right? Let's say I agree. And, and I do think there's an effort to limit his public exposure because people may get upset by this. But like, he's not the same guy that he was five years ago, 10 years ago. And um, he, look, I mean, if anybody doubts that, and this is not a partisan comment at all, if you look at his debate with Paul Ryan, which was in 2012, Ryan, who was almost half his age at the time or was substantially younger, Biden beat Ryan in that debate. I mean, he made Ryan look like a buffoon. And that guy that was in that debate against Paul Ryan is not there anymore. When you see when you watch the debates of him, him and Paul Ryan or him and Sarah Palin, that was a different guy than the guy that we see on uh, you know on the stage now. But let's say I agree that they want to limit his public exposure because he comes across as uh as not as sharp as he used to be. Why couldn't he just go uh si- silently to a ceremony in Washington DC and lay a wreath 
at the Pentagon the way his wife does. What? Well, why? Why would something in Washington D.C. have to necessarily involve the kind of interaction with the press that you think the press that his press team may want to avoid? Oh, I agree with that 100 percent. I think he should be somewhere, even if he doesn't make a statement. But I just think they're trying to keep him away from from the cameras and the press. And I mean, he makes a fool out of himself every time he speaks. Almost, it's, it's terrible. It's horrible that his family even lets him get drugs through this. Because he's definitely not the man he was 10 years ago. And it's very clear. That Thanks, Ryan. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I thought your comment was done there. 800-848-9222. Danielle is in Brooklyn. Hello, Danielle. Hey, Frank. So, all right. The White House, the government, which should know his schedule like a year ahead. So there shouldn't be any conflict in the scheduling. Secondly, he's the president. He represents the com- the the whole country. He represents the American people, even though, like, I wish he didn't because he makes us look like a fool. But he's supposed to be the person to take that has the most pride to like stand up, to, like be like you know the front, the like the front runner, like the person in the, like in the beginning, like to like make the charge. And he's supposed to represent us, and like we got hit bad. And there should be no reason why he can't be at the September 11th memorial unless my I just think because he just doesn't care or he's just too old and they have to like pump him up with that whatever they need to like pump him up with so he could stand up straight and maybe like it interferes the timing schedule interferes with his medication <laughs> or whatever it is his uh, hyperbaric chamber but yeah I I think it's wrong that he's not showing up I wasn't surprised honestly but it it was it was kind of bothersome because even though he's terrible, he is the president. He should be there. Do you think it's a reflection of he doesn't care much? That's what it is, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Like he has, he'd rather do something else or do something where he he can fall asleep without being embarrassed. Interesting. Okay. So you think it's a, even if he doesn't have to talk, the level of hiding might be just about the the visual aspect of this being concerned about uh, about about falling asleep. Well, even though last year I don't remember, or or even the uh, previous year I don't remember there being any any situation where he fell asleep during a, a September 11th ceremony. But you think maybe it's just a, a question of priorities. He thinks it's more important to go to Vietnam or go to India than it is to be at a 9/11 commemoration. Yeah, because honestly, like, with everything that's going on, to me, honestly, I think, like, he has to show face to these other places so, like, he can, you know, make sure that they know that he's still good. Like, you know, all my deals are, like, fine. Like, we're, we're, we're good. Like, he'd rather take priority. He putting, he's putting everybody else as priority instead of America. Like, America's last, honest, obviously. So, like, when he, when he takes, when he... Has the audacity to not show up for a couple of hours at some at like our biggest terrorist attack in our lifetime, and it shows so much disrespect, and it shows that he does not put New York or America as a priority. I can't like, yeah, it's it, just, it's disrespectful. Danielle, let me ask you: Did you, if I can ask, did you vote for President Trump? Yeah. Okay, so um, I you know I did too. I. In 2000, in 2021, 
it was the 20th anniversary of the September 11th attacks. And President Trump obviously was in New York at the time. He went down to Ground Zero shortly thereafter. He's been very generous with a lot of charities that benefit 9-11 victims. I think, you know, the September 11th attacks were very personal to him. And he's talked Mm -hmm. about that a, a great deal. In 2021... I thought it was in very poor taste, even though he was no longer the president anymore, for Donald... Well, yeah, well, so if people don't remember this, for President Trump to go be a commentator at a boxing match between Evander Holyfield and Victor Belfort, and we later learned he was paid $2.5 million. Now, I don't have a problem with him making money or going to a boxing match. I just felt like as someone that was that was a New Yorker and that was here on September 11th and I know cares about this stuff that the optics of doing that on the 20th anniversary of September 11th I, I don't think they looked great uh for no. for him. Did you agree no. do you agree with that? No, I I I didn't think that was I didn't, I think that was like callous. I didn't feel like that was the right thing to do. However, um it was like how they stuck Giuliani all the way in the back. Like Trump wasn't like a lot, like from what I've gathered over, you know, articles and news. And he wasn't, he basically was not allowed to be there. I mean, that's what I gathered. I'm not saying that's facts, of course, but he, with everything that was going on with the, you know, whole election and him losing and him being basically like, he, he's blacklisted in New York. He probably didn't feel comfortable showing there, like showing up there. Just like, you know, Giuliani is the one who, you know, got us through 9-11 and they stuck him all the way in like. Yeah, well, that was absurd. That that was absurd. It's like the same kind of difference. And like if Trump had like, shoot, like he wanted to make money, like he's a businessman. That's why our country ran so great while he. Yeah, no, no. Again, I I don't have a problem with him making. He should have anything. He should have paid tribute or something like like dedicated or something unless like uh the people that threw the um, boxing thingy, like, you know, wanted to keep politics or anything like that out of Right. Or, yeah, exactly. If, if you had to do that and it had to be on September 11th, maybe you ask for a moment of silence during the broadcast or something. But but yeah, yeah and, and thank you, Danielle. And again, um, I'll say the same thing about President Trump in 2021, as I'm saying about President Biden in 2023. All the problems that the country had in 2021 were still there. Whether whether Donald Trump is uh, commentating at a boxing match or not, people are still dying of drug overdoses. There's still problems with crime. There's still problems with the border. There's still problems with inflation. People still struggling to make ends meet. They're all still there. It doesn't really matter if he's at a boxing match, just like all your problems are still there if Biden is in Alaska. And I, I recognize there's a different set of expectations for a former president versus a current president. But I had the same sort of problem with Trump doing that that I have with Biden doing what he's doing. I just think when you're the president, there's a certain gravitas that comes with the role. And part of that is you mourn with the nation when when it's time to mourn. And it's still a time to mourn on September 11th, as far as I'm concerned. All right, 800-848-9222. Going to get back to your calls in just a bit. Hey, I was uh, I told you when we were in uh, Cape May, New Jersey, that my wife had collided in the parking lot 
of the Harriet Tubman Museum with a set of stairs in the parking lot, and she had done substantial damage to our car, which we now share. So I had to we, – we called my Uncle Steve, who's got a body shop, does great work, by the way, and I wanted to bring it into him. Now, I was hoping my Uncle Steve would say, hey, you know, we'll uh, – it's not going to be a lot of money. We'll fix it up for you. The door is damaged. Some other things are damaged. Well, that is not at all what he said. First of all, he said he needs to hold on to the car for five or six days, and it's going to be thousands of dollars. And I know he's not ripping me off because, you know, he always goes out of his way to try and do the right thing. So needless to say, we don't have thousands of dollars. But apparently these days you do anything on a car and it costs a fortune. But it needs a a door. It needs molding. There's I I don't even remember what he said. Three shade paint or something that it needs. So it looks like uh, we're going to have to go through the insurance to get this whole thing done now. But um that's where we are now. So he's fixing it up. And how do I then get to work? So my mother, being the incredibly supportive and kind mother that she is, has volunteered to, because she takes the train to work, she's volunteered to let me use her car this week until our car is back, you know, up and running again. So that's very, very kind. I've been using her car all week while we wait for this car to be repaired and wait for this insurance situation to go through, which I'm sure is just going to be horrible for our insurance rates. But it was very funny yesterday. So her car is now parked in our driveway because I drive to work and I drive back home. And so I walk around with my son during the day, and uh, he is very good with recognizing people's cars. He'll see one neighbor and his car come home, and he'll say, Adam. He'll see another neighbor. He'll say, oh, John Charles. He recognizes everybody's cars. So yesterday, we're walking home from just walking around in the neighborhood, and he sees my mom's car in the in the parking lot, excuse me, in the uh, uh, driveway. And he just says, Grandma. Or he might have even said grandma's car, which was very cute. But then he seems kind of disappointed that she wasn't uh, that she wasn't there. So uh, we had to. Luckily, we were at my aunt Camille's for an egg salad pickup, and he was able to uh, assuage his disappointment with some ginger snaps that uh, that she was kind enough to to give him. But uh, that's the that's the lady. Apparently, my uncle Steve is so busy he couldn't get to it for over a week. I'm not even sure why this dent needed to be taken care of right away. I mean, it was driving fine. It was just aesthetically kind of beat up. Well, how about we wait until we have the money? But I don't know. Rachel had a different view on that. 800-848-9222. Uh, we'll continue with your calls in a moment. You want to find us on the social media platform formerly known as Twitter. You can do so at Frank Morano. That's Frank M-O-R-A-N-O. Uh, And again, uh, Kenneth is here, Matt Blaze is here, and uh, the newest member of our team, Christine, is here for day three. She made it back for day three, those of you that are curious. And uh, coming up in about 45 minutes, Gnome Layden will be here to take you for a news trip around the world. That's not to be missed. 800-848-9222, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight.
other side at midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. This, of course, is Rihanna. Uh, We are keeping an eye on Hurricane Idala, which has begun its barrage on Florida, and it is going to be traveling, evidently, northeast to the Carolinas today. As of now, it is a Category 3 storm. It is expected and forecast to become a Category 4 storm. So we're going to be watching this. And uh, if we do have a lot of listeners there, if you are listening and you have power and you have Internet or however you happen to be listening to us and you would like to call us in, call us and give us a, a heads up on uh, what you're experiencing, you're welcome to give us a call at 800-848-9222. I'm looking especially at the area around Tampa on one of the television screens, and it looks like they're experiencing particularly significant winds. I reached out to uh, some friends of mine in the Tampa area and have yet to hear back about uh, how they're weathering this storm. So we'll see how it goes. Wishing everybody the best, needless to say. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on anything that we are talking about thus far. You know, I just got an email here from from Neil, who I believe was on the show earlier. He said of my car, if you have to make an insurance claim, they should be giving us a rental. You know, he's right. Why? Why am I not getting a rental? If I mean, we we pay our premiums. I, I don't think we've ever put in a claim. So why? Why shouldn't we be getting a rental right now? I mean, luckily, my mom is uh, very kind to let me borrow her car. But we, we should be getting a rental as part of the insurance policy. here. Well, it depends on your policy. I think we have rental, right? I mean, I don't know. I got to ask my wife. But um, I mean, again, do I want to go to a car rental place and rent the car? Probably not. But uh, but we'll see. Hopefully, it gets repaired quickly rather than 
rather than slowly. We'll see. We'll, we'll see where that goes. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Cindy is in New Jersey. Hello, Cindy. Yeah, uh, I just want to say it's not only going to look bad in America that our president uh, can't seem to find the time or for whatever reason does not go, but uh, we have to uh, uh, remember that our allies who uh, have uh, uh, assisted us during that period of time and who still hold ceremonies each year, how it's going to look to them that our president can't even come. And uh, quite frankly, uh, the Saudis themselves. Meaning? Who are trying to prove that they had no connection at all to 9-11. That's right. Yeah. We have to keep that in mind. That to the Saudis themselves, the fact that our president cannot uh, uh, attend uh, might uh, give them the wrong impression. Yeah, Cindy, that's a good point, and it's one that I hadn't heard mentioned elsewhere. There are, there is an attempt right now by the September 11th families, by members of Congress, by regulators, by people like me, actually to hold the Saudis accountable for what they did in the run-up to September 11th and in the days after September 11th. And we have seen Republican and Democratic presidents totally beholden to the Saudis for a variety of reasons, mostly due to economic reasons, and then you throw a a dose of, you know, energy-related reasons in there. And I think Citi actually brings up a very good point. If... President Biden is kind of saying to the world that, you know, my time is being better spent elsewhere. Does that say to the Saudis that maybe he's not necessarily concerned with making sure that they're held accountable if there are lawsuits from family members of their terrorism or terrorism that they sponsor? Remember, that was the only bill that was ever overturned, excuse me, the only veto that was ever overturned in the Obama administration was this bill to allow the victims of terrorism to go after foreign governments, including Saudi Arabia. I think that's a good point. And if you look at how the Saudis are ascendant in America, they are paying off think tanks. They are paying off uh, all sorts of other things. They're buying sporting leagues. And there's speculation that golf is just the beginning. They may look to go into wrestling next and take over baseball, football. There's no telling what the Saudis are going to do. And I do think it sends a message to, and again, I don't want to overstate this here, but I do think it sends a message to the world what the president's priorities are. 800-848-9222, 800-848-9222. Mary Beth is on Long Island. Hello, Mary Beth. Hey, good morning. Morning. Um, I must tell you, David helped me, unfortunately, break my record. Um, I saw a sign a month ago hanging on a store in my town, and every week they changed the sign, and it said, start each day with a positive thought and gratitude in your heart. And I woke up this morning to your show with David, as usual, being bitter, ranting and raving about everything. And you and Danielle and now Cindy have helped calm me down and made me remember why I wanted to talk to you. Um, 
have have you read the only plane in the sky i haven't well catch me up on that what is that it is an historical history of 9-11 oh, actually i did read this book i did read this book yeah i'm looking at it now i did read this book and this book takes you as you know moment by moment through the day from the perspectives of people who lived it in a most horrific way. Yeah, it's an oral it's, history if people are unfamiliar yes. with it. Yeah, it's very it's very well done actually. I have this. And for people who weren't alive that day, maybe their parents talk about it, they see a documentary or part of a documentary on that day. Reading this book now and then, or just picking it up and reading part of this book, and maybe it is available in Braille, and I'm not being fresh because I know David has a problem with his vision. But if he took the time to read even part of that book, maybe he would get why that day is so important and should always be that important. Well, yeah, thank you, Mary Beth. And just in defense of David, and look, I disagree with where he comes down on that, but I don't think he was going out of his way to be disrespectful. I mean, he was expressing his opinion about whether the president needs to be in New York or in Washington that day, and his contention was that uh, that he doesn't, and he gave his explanation as to why. He was he's just as much of a New Yorker as anybody else's. He's entitled to his opinion. And I want those opinions expressed on this program. I want all points of view expressed on this program. So I don't want to turn this into a beat up on David situation because I, I don't think he was uh, trying to be mean spirited or disrespectful. He was just explaining why he doesn't think it's a big deal that Biden is not in New York on that particular day. So I, I don't want to be unfair to david 800-848-9222 linda is in new jersey hello linda hello it's so nice to talk to you frank thanks you too Um, (laughs) yes i think there's two reasons why he's not going to show up i think that um one is that 9-11 was a failure in, in national security and now we have an open border with like 7 million unvetted people here and that would, I think, uh, probably raise a lot of concerns and bring that to mind. And the second thing is I think he'd be pretty insensitive, like usual, and say something stupid, like a bird pooped on his house and almost blew up his, conve- uh, his Corvette, and he would probably compare that to the World Trade Center bombing. Well, th- thanks, Linda. You know, in um, last year, he... When he got through September 11th without incident, there were no major embarrassing incidents of uh, anything. Last year, he was at uh, a 9-11 memorial ceremony at the Pentagon. And I don't remember what he did the the year before that. But it's not as, you know, he visited um, with firefighters last year, I think, in in Pennsylvania. So, I mean, he was in Pennsylvania in 2021. He was in Virginia in 2022. I think it would have been nice if he came to New York in 2023. But um, I, I, so I don't think it's a question of him being concerned that he's going to say something dumb because you don't have to say anything. You can just sit there and plant a wreath or something along those lines. But um, I don't know. I don't like it. I don't like it. I wish he were 
making it more of a priority. And uh, for some of the reasons that Danielle stated and some of the reasons that Cindy stated as well. Those of you that are holding, if you want to continue to hold, we'll get to you throughout the course of the morning. Noam Layden will be here in about uh, 30 minutes. We'll go through all the news that you can new, that you can use. And if you're like me and you like to procrastinate, we have some good news for you. Your influence counts. So use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morrow, everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Superstar Frank Morano. I'm actually now getting mail addressing me as Superstar Frank Morano, which I appreciate. You know, when I was on television yesterday, on uh, or the previous day, on Dan Abrams' show, my I didn't notice this until I watched or a glimpse of the clip yesterday. They did not have my graphic refer to me as Superstar Frank Morano, which I think is very disrespectful. And if they invite me on the program again, I will be making note of that. I mean, would you have a Ph.D. on the program and not have doctor in front of their title? I think not. Same thing with those of us that have achieved superstar status. Now, I have a confession to make. I don't know if I've ever said this before. I probably have, but it happens to be true. I am a procrastinator. Oh, yes. I am a I am a longtime, lifelong procrastinator. In fact, I am so good at procrastination that I um, part of the reason that um, I was so eager to have a child is I my wife was in another room and she was talking about procreation and I thought she was saying procrastination. And I said, well, procrastination, I'm all about it. Let's do it. And then lo and behold, I had no idea what I was signing up for. I thought I was signing up for putting something off and no, needless to say, it was a very different experience. <laughs> in any event, Procrastination is largely thought of as negative and probably with good reason. I never really thought about procrastination as a thing. 
I just thought of it as something that you do. When I was in school, every level of school, by the way, elementary school, junior high school, high school and college and graduate school, my whole academic career was defined by procrastination. If there was a project due, if I had uh, three weeks to do it, a month to do it, four days to do it, or a whole semester to do it, I would start that project the very same day. Every every single time it would start the same day. And the day that I would start it would be the day after it was due. I put everything off to the last possible minute and then some, and it creates just, it would always create a very stressful situation. I do, it is the bane of my wife's existence. She will say, can you install that fan? Can you build this? Can you take the garbage out? And I will do all those things, but I will do them at the last possible minute. Why? I don't know. Part of it is my psyche, but I will get it all done, but I will get it done the last possible minute that you can get it done. And um, I have to say, this is something I've always been a little embarrassed by. That being said, it's part of who I am. I am a procrastinator. And I never really thought of procrastination for being a thing until I watched an episode of Garfield and Friends in October of 1992. Did you ever watch Garfield and Friends? I haven't seen it in quite some time, but it was a great show. In many ways, it was it was sort of Family Guy before Family Guy was a thing. It was very cle- – at least I rem- from what I remember 30 years ago – it was a very clever show. It was just as amusing for adults as it was for children. And they had these uh, cutaways of uh, not related to Garfield or anything, but another story that was on the show of uh, the people in, I don't know, these people that hung out on a farm, something acres. I don't remember what, where it was. But they had a pig named Orson And they had a rooster and all these other people. Roy, I think, was the rooster. And they had an episode called Sooner or Later. I tried to find the video of it on the YouTube to see, if one, if it was as funny as I remembered it. But I guess I shouldn't have put off looking for it until five minutes before the show, and maybe I would have found it. But it was all about how a wolf tricks almost everyone on the farm into procrastinating except for Orson. And uh, Orson is furiously working on a fence around the chicken coop and notices the viewers. And he says the others are having a meeting in the barn and explains what led to this with a flashback. And there's a wolf that's lurking around. Orson decides to put up the, uh, the fence and the other people all decide because of the wolf's prodding to procrastinate. So I've always been embarrassed by this. I've always tried to deal with this, sometimes with better results than at other times. But I came across a fascinating, fascinating article yesterday in Bloomberg Bloomberg Weekly, written by Anna Holmes, who's a pretty good writer. I've seen some of other, her other stuff. And the headline is, The Procrastinator's Paradox. What if delaying your work is part of the process? Hello, hello. This is my kind of article. Wait a minute. Here is an article that runs counter to everything that I have been experiencing, watching, reading since October of 1992. 
Everything that I've experienced over the last 31 years has been saying procrastination is negative. And I come across this article, and this to me is like an oasis in the middle of a procrastinator's desert. Anna writes, Anna, I don't know who this woman is, but uh, Miss Holmes writes, I start out with the best of intentions on the couch, the computer, on my lap. I type a bit, then type a bit more. I look up and notice that across the room, things are looking messy, namely a pile of books on the floor that I purchased to use as material for the book I'm trying to write. I get up to arrange them into something more uniform. Then the cat starts crying by the window. I get up again. Turns out he wants the blinds open so he can sit in the sun. I open the blinds. I sit back down. Now I decide I'm thirsty, but the cup of guava-flavored LaCroix on the coffee table at my feet has lost its effervescence. And anyway, there are cat hairs floating in it. I get up to get a new can. In the kitchen, I check my Fitbit. 459 steps so far in a 600-square-foot apartment. At this rate, I'll hit 1,000 by 1 p.m., and it's only 10 in the morning. And she writes that what I just read to you is her attempt to honor a British writer that wrote this book, Out of Sheer Rage, which documents his attempts and failures and distractions to write a scholarly book about D.H. Lawrence. And this writer, Jeff Dyer, finds all sorts of reasons to avoid writing. He needs to report more, to take more notes. He's not sure where he wants to live and what European city he might be able to do his best work. I want to buy that book because I didn't know that it uh, existed. But that paragraph really speaks to me and my whole process. I can relate, other than the fact that I drink bubbly or Zevia, not LaCroix, I can relate to everything that she's going through. And she writes, paradoxically, though, the confidence and velocity of his prose suggests that he doesn't struggle with writing that much. Also, on one of his book's early pages, under the headline of the heading also by Jeff Dyer, his publishers listed 10 other titles he's written. Ten. And Anna Holmes says she's written two books so far, and those were just an anthology and a compendium, not original narratives. And she goes into extolling the benefits of procrastination. Now, procrastination and the resulting lack of productivity cost the economy, according to Gallup, um, $7.8 trillion a year. Putting things off does have a demonstrable personal cost as well. For one thing, according to a 2023 study, it can negatively impact your health. Because it's such a common problem for writers and humans alike, there's an entire market devoted to helping people become more productive. And I've used some of these strategies. I've read some of these books. Some of them are helpful. Um, But then... She gets into the fact that maybe if you're a creative type, a writer or whatever the case may be, maybe procrastination is just part of your process. I have accepted the fact that I am a pro-procrastinator. And I am embracing this Anna Holmes philosophy. And I thought, you know, I come across articles every week, maybe every month, giving tips on how to stop procrastinating. So what I thought might be fun and maybe even productive there, I say, is if you are one of my people, the procrastinating set, I want to help the people that are not procrastinators. And I want to make a list of ways that we can help people procrastinate. In the last... Three minutes, 
I have come up with a list of my one, two, three, four, five, six, seven favorite methods of procrastinating. The seven strategy, and these are, I use a lot more than seven. These are just the first seven that came to mind. Seven strategies that I use to procrastinate. And what I'm hoping to do in compiling this compendium of procrastination strategies is if you're a procrastinator, I want to give you some of my tips. If you're not a procrastinator, and I'm not even saying this to be funny, maybe try it. See what happens. If you have work to do today, try putting it off till the last possible minute. Try it. See what comes about. And I am going to give you my strategies for procrastination, whether you're a procrastinator or an anti-crastinator. And I want to hear yours. What methods do you use to procrastinate? What do you do to put things off? 800-848-9222. Here are mine. Uh, Matt Blaze, you're a procrastinator, definitely, right? I still didn't get my uh, 1-800-Flowers audio from 100%. Monday. Yeah. Um, so, And Kenneth, where are you on the procrastination situation? Yeah, I'm definitely in that procrastination realm. Yeah, no, there's, there, uh, clearly there's a reason nothing's getting done on our show is that all three of us are procrastinating all the time. So be it. Um, here are my strategies, and then I'll ask Kenneth and Matt Blaze theirs, and if you want to give me yours, give me a call, 800-848-9222. My favorite, my absolute favorite strategy of procrastinating, because these are all designed to fool my brain into thinking that I'm actually doing something, okay? And at the same time, all of these are putting whatever I'm supposed to be doing, putting it off for five minutes, 10 minutes, an hour, whatever. The first thing that I do to procrastinate, and I do this certainly every weekend, But if I can't sleep at night and maybe even if I'm up uh, under the gun trying to meet a deadline, the very first thing that I do is I make a to-do list. I make a massive to-do list. And uh, especially this was a lot easier before I had to uh, deal with Carmine's sleep schedule. But I would start every weekend day, meaning Saturday or Sunday, by starting the day, writing out. Everything that I was going to accomplish that day or that weekend. And I would just keep writing. All right, well, I'm going to do this. Then I'm going to do that. Then I'm going to do this. And I just keep going until the to-do list gets ridiculous. And then I realize it's getting ridiculous and I can't go back and look up. And then I say, well, okay. Now I, I kind of start recognizing the the futility of what I'm doing. And I'll say, well, wait a minute. This is getting a little crazy. I'm not going to be able to accomplish all these things and I'm going to be left with this sense of failure at the end of the day or at the end of the weekend thinking that I haven't done any of the things that I wanted to do. So what do I then do? I add more to the to-do list. But now I add easier items. I add items that can get done in three minutes, the five minutes, because those are the items that I can cross out easily before, um, you know, and get some semblance of accomplishment in there. All right, so maybe writing a feature-length screenplay or a 30-page research paper, maybe that will take a little bit more time than, say, I don't know, take the garbage out, right? So I, I get it all in on there. And sometimes, I'm not joking, sometimes I'll spend hours on this to-do list, making this to-do list. 
And it is a wonderful way to procrastinate because in my my mind, I'm not procrastinating. I'm organizing. Well, I'd love to hear yours. 800-848-9222. Number two, as you've noticed, if you've ever emailed me, and you can email me, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com, frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com, is go through my emails. I try to stay on top of my emails. I try to get back to everybody that writes to me. I try to read every email that, I, that I've that i gotten. And if there's something that has to be done, nope, I've got to get through my emails. And sometimes I'll see an email pop up on my mobile phone or even on my computer that I see is probably pretty urgent. It's a an interview that I have to uh, uh, prepare for or it's uh, something that I've got to get done. And I just keep going. I have to go sequentially in order and get all these emails answered. And um, that's another big one for me. Another one is I will make social plans. I'll make a plan to uh, someone keeps inviting me to dinner or breakfast or lunch or coffee or a drink. I'll get back to that person that I know has been wanting to make plans with me and I'll make a plan. In my brain, again, I'm, I'm getting something done. The other thing that I really enjoy doing, and I think I've gotten this down to an art form, is writing memos. I will take a something that could be a quick email or a quick phone call, and I will turn this into a three- or four-page memo. Not necessarily to the benefit of the person that's receiving this memo, but to the benefit of yours truly, who's trying to procrastinate like a pro. And, and so I got make a to-do list, go through emails, make social plans, write memos. Another one, exercise, exercise, because even though whatever I'm supposed to be getting done, I still have not gotten done. I feel like I'm doing something positive. Okay, well, sure. I'm not getting my um, credit card bill paid or I'm not going to the bank or getting my oil changed, but that all can wait. I got to get a little exercise. That's always a big one. Uh, And then watch a movie. Look, I've got 434 films to get through from Netflix before September 29th so I can try and make my way through this queue before they discontinue the DVD by mail service. I got to watch these movies. So in my brain, I'm justifying it as I've got to get something done. And then lastly, I alluded to this before. Um, you do an easy household chore because this way I'm getting at least a little bit of positive approbation from my wife because I'll get whatever done that she's been asking me to do for three weeks or four weeks. If I build a piece of furniture or uh, whatever, clean up this or do that, at least I'm getting that done. And while I'm putting off what I might need to be doing in some other aspect of my life, at least I'm getting something done on, uh, on the household front. So those are my, my procrastination strategies. I'd love to hear yours because I read through this list of strategies on how to avoid procrastinating. Some of them are pretty good, but I would much rather go the other way and hear your strategies on how to procrastinate. I guarantee you, this is the only radio show in America and perhaps the world right now that is giving people strategies on how to procrastinate. Then again, 
Maybe there's a reason this is the only radio show in the country or the world that is giving people tips on how to procrastinate. 800-848-9222. Matt Blaze, do you have anything you want to add to my list? Any strategies you utilize? The only thing I always say is that I'll get it done later. I'll have time to do it later because I just don't feel like doing it now. And then later comes and then I still don't feel like doing something so it doesn't get done. But I'm looking at your list and this list is just a big circle of procrastination. Yes. Because you're just doing one thing. Right. And then like, oh, I can't go through my emails because I have to make social plans. Oh, wait, I can't make social plans because I have to exercise. Oh, wait, I can't watch a movie because I have to do this. I have to exercise. It's just a big circle. Everything just leads to procrastinating the next thing. And it just goes around. Well, that's right. Well, these are, these are procrastination strategies. But, but <laughs> you're just procrastinating from Whatever it is that you have to do. That's right. That's exactly right. But that, we can make a list and say everything's procrastination and, and to what's important to somebody. In other words, if it's important to me to go mow the lawn and I go, no, I can't mow the lawn because I have to build this desk. And then I go, what? Well, I can't build the desk because I have to clean out my refrigerator. Oh, wait. I can't clean out my refrigerator because I have to go take a nap right now. Well, like, well that's right. I mean, one but, to the other but, to the other to the, the thing, other. The thing that you need to understand also is when I finally get around to accomplishing whatever it is that I have been putting off, the person who is on the other end of that is so, one, surprised that I'm coming through with this, and two, so grateful, because they've given up that on, on me ever coming through. For instance, I am calling back people now that called me 10 months ago. I'm, I'm not joking. I'm getting, I'm returning email. You know, some uh, people will ask me for specific questions. There's a book, a guy writing a book about Staten Island, uh, for instance. I have been... Uh, He's been waiting for my responses to this book that he wants to put me in for a year and a half. Now, imagine how thrilled he's going to be next week when he gets that. My wife has had a bracelet at the jeweler that she has been waiting for me to pick up for six months. So when all this stuff gets done, people are just floored. They're they're really grateful. But does it get done? Yes, eventually. <laughs> Sometimes it Are takes sure? five years. You know, um, we were talking yesterday about Curtis Lewa. By the way, shout out to Curtis Lewa not getting arrested yesterday. He was, uh, I was his producer in uh, 2007 or thereabouts. And he he has a similar situation. He collects mail and goes through mail and eventually gets back to everybody. And he came across a... Um, a letter that was written to him by a fifth grader, I think, in 1992, and he didn't get around to reading it and responding to it until 2007, about about 15 years later. And so the kid had asked him for information about guardian uh, the guardian angels that he could use for a a show and tell presentation or something along those lines his name was aj bogdan i remember the guy's name and curtis (laughs) sent him back the information that he was looking for 15 years later and he said he included the note sorry that it's taken me so long to get to this i'm sure you know by now you're you're finishing your your third year of medical school but we eventually get back to, to everybody. 
But I thought so. I thought that was funny, and I appreciated. Uh, I appreciated that. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Mickey in Brooklyn. You have any good procrastination strategies? Yes, I think that this might work, Frank. But it, here's the deal: you should start a twelve step program on Procrastinators Anonymous. The problem is nobody's going to show up. <laughs> That's very good. That's very good, Mickey. My commendation on uh, on uh, not uh, on procrastinating, turning your radio off. Phil is in Staten Island. Hello, Phil. Hey, how are you? Good morning, sir. Morning. Uh, well, I would have to say that uh, I'm a little bit uh, different on the spectrum. Where I'd rather not do the menial things around the house. Uh, I'd rather renovate the apartment downstairs. Uh, do major vehicle uh, uh, repairs on our vehicles. Thank God for my wife. She's kind of my uh, household uh, procrastination um, person. She takes care of everything. When it comes to the small menial things, I do the big jobs. So do you have any uh, strategies for how people can procrastinate if it's something they want to do? Uh, well, from a, a blue-collar guy's perspective, uh, it's not much of a strategy. I more or less uh, do the big jobs that nobody else wants to do. I start with the hardest thing first. And uh, work my way to the smaller things. Yeah, I'm not sure that's procrastination, Phil. I think that's actually the opposite of procrastination. Well, I don't know, because uh, if I put a little bit of time in between the big jobs and procrastinate for a week or two in between the big jobs, and she takes care of the smaller stuff, and I can sit around for a week or two after work. Uh, Fair enough, Phil. Okay, 800-848-9222. Paulie in Westwood, hello. Yeah, Frank. I think the word procrastination comes from the word uh, the honey-do list. Right, right. Honey-do this, honey-do that. Sure. Exactly. And and that's why people procrastinate, because they're like, oh, my God, I got to do this again, or I got to do this, I got to do that. That's where the word procrastinate comes from. So do you have any procrastination tips for us, Paulie? Oh, God. Don't get married. <laughs> well, fair enough. Thank you, Paul. So far, not a lot of good tips other than the ones from me. So far, nobody has given really good procrastination strategies on how to put off what you don't feel like doing at any given moment. Maybe, uh, I don't know, maybe this is not an audience that likes to put things off, or maybe they're just putting off calling. One of the two. Hey, uh, by the way, I have to play this. I mentioned earlier that uh, that today is the anniversary of when Casey Stengel, the old professor, retired from Major League Baseball. His last job in baseball was managing the New York Metropolitans. And whenever I think of Casey Stengel, I think of testimony that he gave before Congress, before the Senate Antitrust and Monopoly Subcommittee in 1958. He's there with some other baseball players. I think Mickey Mantle was there and uh, a lot of politicians. Uh, Estes Kefauver was uh, probably the the best known, but a lot of other politicians as well. And Casey Stengel was speaking about the antitrust that the antitrust exemption that baseball enjoys. And this is what uh, Casey Stengel had to say in 1950. There is now, uh, through the farm system, a major league control of the professional occupation of baseball playing. Is that a correct summary? Well, you have uh, that, uh, from the standpoint of what you've been reading, you've got that down very good. 
I said, just like I uh, made a talk not long ago, and I told them all when they was drinking and they invited me in, I said, you ought to be home. You men are not making enough money. You can't drink like that. They said, this is a holiday for the Shell Oil Company. And I said, why is it a holiday? They said, we did something great for three years, and we are given two days off for the to watch the Yankees play the White Sox, but they were mostly White Sox rooters. I said, well, you're not doing right. I said, you can't take those drinks and all, even on your holidays. You ought to be home and raising more children because the big league clubs now give you 100000 for a bonus to go into baseball. And by the way, I don't happen to have any children, but I wish Mrs. Stengel and I had eight. I'd like to put them in on that bonus rule. <laughs> Now, to this day, I have no idea what Casey Stengel said there. I can't make out, and he was speaking English. I have no idea what he was talking about. But the person that had to speak right after him was Mickey Mantle. And so one of the senators asks Mickey Mantle, right after that meandering E. Frank-like testimony from Casey Stengel, he says, Mr. Mantle, what do you have to say about what uh, Mr. Stengel had to say? And Mickey Mantle, he has no idea what Casey Stengel said either. So what do you think he says? He said, well, everything Casey said, I agree with. <laughs> God bless him. 800-848-9222. Hey, Tom on Long Island, you have some procrastination strategies for us? Yes. Uh, I work with a retired Army colonel, and his strategy, he tells you, the reason you wait to the last minute is because then it only takes a minute to do. <laughs> I like that. That is a good one. Jack in New Jersey. Hello. Frank, I want to tell you, your strategy is the dumbest thing I ever heard. Now I'm going to tell you why, okay? Everything in life is an attitude, okay? And that's what keeps a person sober, straightening out their attitude. For an example, well, who wants to be why sober? wipe my butt? I'm only going to take a, a crap later. Why make the bed? I'm only going to go to sleep tonight. Why brush my teeth? I'm only going to eat a few hours later. It's a bad attitude. Well, I, I, do me a favor. Read this Anna Holmes uh, piece in Bloomberg about procrastination being part of the creative process. I really do think people like uh, Anna Holmes and, and others, that you know, the creative types like me, we, you know, it's part of our process. It's not necessarily a bad thing. And even if it is a bad thing, you've got so many other people explaining to you how to beat procrastination. No, I want to be the show that tells you how to master procrastination. Harvey is in the Bronx. Hello, Harvey. Hello. Uh, I have a suggestion for you. Say you're going to go to the post office. Okay, which you, which you don't do. I just sent something to you in the post office, which says that both Joe Biden and, Joe Biden and I wrote papers at Syracuse University during the 1960s. He uh, plagiarized, and I did a 450-page uh, thesis on the 1960 presidential election. So oh. at the post office, hello? Yeah. Are you with me? I think so, Harvey. I think so. Yeah. Anyway, so Joe Biden did plagiarized his paper in 1965. I completed my master's thesis in the 1960s presidential election at Syracuse Newhouse School in the 1960s. So if you go to the post office, you can get it unless you want to procrastinate. 
It's the post office. All right. Also, uh, Thank you, Harvey. Appreciate it. Dave is in Ohio. Hello, Dave. Hi, good morning. I I have a procrastination process, but first I'd just like to say i pretty smart I, guy. I fix cars and do home repairs and all that, and I, I know that my old lady likes to have these things done. I just wish she'd stop reminding me every month. <laughs> and uh, I have lists of lists. I have so many lists on my on my uh, Apple computer that I have little post-it notes and it became overwhelming on this desktop. So now I had to re I had to categorize the post-it notes into groups by color. It takes longer to go through them than it would to do any one. You know, thing. that's good. That's up my alley, Dave. That is a good one. I think that's the best one authored by someone not named Frank Morano. Stevie in Staten Island, you have a procrastination strategy. Hey, good morning, my friend. Good morning. Uh, yeah, I do. You know what? Doesn't, don't many things just get done anyway? Yes! Somebody does it. You put so much on yourself. You know what? Why do I have to do everything? You know what? That's procrastinating. You know what? Today I'm going to take a break, step back, and let somebody else do it. Because all these little things they put on our shoulders, and they take advantage of us. You know what? It usually gets done, doesn't it? God bless you, Stevie. Unless it's an emergency. If it's urgent, I'll do it. That's exactly. Come on, You know, Stevie, thank you. I described this the other day. I still have this chest pain from this collision in softball 10 days ago. Uh, It's starting to feel a little better, but I am confident that if I keep procrastinating going to the doctor, eventually it'll go away, right? But sometimes it does work out. You know, it's funny. Speaking of um, taking a long time to answer a letter, I am reminded of the infamous Ringo – well, he's not infamous, but the very famous Ringo Starr and how he answers letters, at least on the world of The Simpsons. Dear Sally. In response to your letter of December the 12th, 1966, my favourite colour is blue and my real first name is Richard. Thanks for the snapshot. You're a real cute bird. Love, Ringo. P.S. Forgive the lateness of my reply. Mr. Starr, tea and crumpets. Just said it over there. Sir, if you'll forgive an old brick for his impertinence, your devotion to your fans is nothing short of remarkable. Well, Weatherby, they took the time to write me, and I don't care if it takes me another 20 years. I'm going to answer every one of them. Hello, what's this? <sighs> From Springfield, USA. Gear. Hello, what's this? It's for you, Marge. From merry old England. From the desk of Ringo Starr. Dear Marge, thanks for the fab painting of yours truly. I hung it on me wall. You're quite an artist. In answer to your question, yes, we do have hamburgers and fries in England, but we call French fries chips. Love, Ringo. P.S. Forgive the lateness of my reply. No! Come on, Marge, paint. I think you can do it. Okay, Homer. If you think I can. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Tired, tired. 
The Kinks here on the other side of midnight. And I know what uh, a lot of you are saying. Uh, well, there's only compelling radio program, uh, only compelling radio content on this program once in a blue moon. Luckily for you, today there is going to be a blue moon. That's right. Tonight, there is going to be a rare blue supermoon, which must mean it is time for some interesting content on this program. That content comes in the person of our news director, Noam Layden. Hello there, Noam. Good morning, Frank. Noam, i got a question here that uh, a listener sent in. He prefers to remain anonymous, but he wants to know why on this on this segment that we do which i'm really enjoying you your voice sounds deeper than when you do your own news broadcast at 5 a.m on wabc in new york that is a great question it could be i do the show from a different area Uh, so maybe just the microphone i see okay all right i saw that you uh, offered to bring in coffee for everybody well you know i actually i heard about your plight with your car and not being able to afford to pay for the damage yes. to your car. So I stopped at a bodega uh, just about six blocks from here. I bought 10 cups of coffee. Oh. And when I got here, I sold one to Christine. I bought it for two bucks, but I sold it for eight uh, eight bucks. So I'm going to give you the six bucks. And uh, anybody else that I sell the coffee to, because we have a broken coffee machine here at the office, I will give those funds over to you for your car repair. You know, this is clearly a predicate racketeering act in the minds of either Jack Smith or Fonny Will. I want I want no part of this. All right, what's happening in the news that people need to be aware of? There's a, one big story. We've kind of been following this since July 1st. So uh, Congress has passed this deal that allows prisoners to get college educations and use Pell Grants to do so, mm. right? So regular Americans can apply for a Pell Grant. But in this case, these prisoners who are getting education and college education from a real college uh, don't have to pay back these grants. And uh, it's being offered now to 760,000 people behind bars. And so there's some uproar about this, as you might guess, because college is so incredibly expensive. In the case of these prisoners, they're getting educations in the case of in California. Uh, it's a Sacramento state is offering this program and it's a, it's a four year degree. And when you get out of prison, you'll have this four year degree. So the people who argue in favor of this will say, hey, are people in prison to be punished? Are they in prison to be reformed? And if we send somebody out of prison reformed with a college education, they're less likely, of course, to be reincarcerated. Now, do only certain prisons offer this or can you get one of these Pell Grants to do pursue a college education in any federal prison? It's a prison by prison. So uh-huh. certain states won't let people have access to these Pell Grants. But uh, when you talk about a number 760,000, we haven't seen a number a pool of uh, prisoners who've had access to a college education like this in decades. Well, I think that's great. I think that's really uh, – that's a wonderful thing. Of course you want people to get an education in prison. So it costs – in California, it costs about $106,000 a year to keep someone behind bars. That college education costs about $20,000 for the four-year college in this program that they have with Sacramento State. And um, they said about 43 percent of the people who get this college education never return to prison and actually go on to, 
you know, I don't know if it's high quality lives, but lives that are better well spent. What about this? What if you combine the two concepts of prison and college? Just put a wall around Berkeley, right. let's say, right? Okay. And have it do both, right? That, it's now it's a prison and a college. Not a bad idea. Right? And okay. at a place like Berkeley, they might actually go for something <laughs> like might. that. Yeah. Um, out at the U.S. Open, this has been the big talk here in New York City. Of course, the U.S. Open is in Queens out in New York City. Uh, it is the smell of pot that is bothering the players on the courts. And you had a player, uh, Maria Sakari, who is a well-known person on the circuit. She's playing on one of the courts on Monday, the opening day of the U.S. Open. And she says the smell of pot is so overwhelming that it is the reason that she lost. In fact, she stopped the match a few times to go up to the umpire and say, do you smell that? And everybody there said, yeah, we do smell that pot, uh, but there's not much they could do about it. Of course, pot is legal here in New York City. You can smoke up at the Billie Jean King Tennis Center. You're not allowed. It's a smoke-free zone, but um, they think maybe some of the smoke is coming from a park next door because uh, this uh, area where the U.S. Open is played, there's the stadiums, but then there's the outdoor courts where some of these matches are played, and they can be pretty far away and, and close to other parks where – Pot is legal. So they're not sure what to do about this, but players had complained about this last year, and they said, you need to fix this problem. Well, they haven't fixed it, and here we go again. It's uh, day uh, three today of the U.S. Open. Yesterday again, players saying they smelled pot everywhere, and yes, it's bothering them as they try to play. I I can absolutely understand that. I mean, again, I I don't care if people want to smoke pot, but I really do find the smell quite offensive and very... Very distracting. And that's just walking around. I can't imagine trying to play a competitive sport. I, I kind of hear where the players are coming from on this. Yeah, and, and it's an issue for New York in general. Everywhere you go, you just smell oh, yeah. these pockets no of weed no matter what. But it's legal, and so you can light up. Uh, yeah, it's just uh, – you, you, meanwhile, you try to uh, try to smoke a cigar in a park or on a beach. The SWAT team will oh, yeah. come in and swoop you up. But uh, – Marijuana, for whatever reason, it's a different ballgame. That is true, though. Cigars yes. drive people crazy. Right. I've seen that before. People will go up to them, can you put that out? Yeah, no, exactly. And you're like, I'm outside. Right. Yeah. Right. right. Uh, uh, there's a story. This is a, this will be good for you having such a young kid. So there's an airline, Korodan Airlines, which is a Turkish airlines. They're now going to offer a flight where you, uh, families can sit with their kids in one section And if you don't want to be near those kids, for people who have older kids or just don't want to be near a crying baby, you can pay an extra fee. They're testing this out. It's a pilot program. And you can sit in a different section that's in the front that has a little more room, and you'll be away from crying babies. So there'll be a section that's adults only, 16 and older. You pay this extra fee. Uh, They're testing it out on a flight from Amsterdam to uh, Curaçao. Is that how you say it? Curacao? I never know how to say the I, name I think of that so. country. Yeah, I, I always try to avoid it. But um, that see, that's interesting. I could see that being very popular with a lot of people. Can you separate from your own children? <laughs> that's a great question. I don't think so. No. Okay. Well, yeah. that's that's going to be that's going to be a tougher sell. I do wonder about that adult themes section. If they do all sorts of other adult activities, you throw profanity around, you have can. drinks, and that, maybe yeah. So this, pornography. It, you know. Oh, it's going to be right. everywhere. Exactly. Uh, you porn is actually sponsoring this. <laughs> so it's a ten-hour flight. So this is they figured that's try it out on a ten-hour flight, which is a long flight, right? right? Oh, no doubt. And uh, already, uh, you can imagine, uh, these seats have been snapped up. 
People were like, wait, I don't have to near, be near a crying baby. You know what this is like. And well, now you have one. But when you walk down that aisle and you see that baby crying, the first thing you think is, I hope my seat is like 10 aisles away. Yeah. Well, now you will be 10 yeah. aisles hey, away. Uh, I, I can see that being effective. We'll see how that works out. Thank you, Noam sure. Layden. Always, always a treat. Uh, for those of you that want to hear more from Noam, in about 10 minutes, he will be on WABC in New York. All right. Uh, we're going to do 15 seconds in of fame in just a minute. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. That's where you get to comment on anything you like for 15 seconds. You want to join the Facebook group, you can. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters on Facebook or go to Facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. I have received word from my brother Alexander, and our bet is a go. I want to memorialize this for all to hear. If you're not up on this, my brother Alexander believes, against all odds, and against any semblance of reality or common sense, my brother Alexander believes that Governor Chris Christie will be the Republican nominee for president. Now. He, uh, this is Frank Morano speaking, he absolutely will not. There is no chance that that will happen. Sure as I'm alive, Chris Christie will not be the Republican nominee for president. Not next year, not any year. But uh, Alex is insistent. So I said, all right, let's bet on it. Let's bet on it, and I will give you odds, whatever odds you want. So we have come to terms. Here are the odds. If Chris Christie is the Republican nominee for president... I will purchase Alexander five dinners at restaurants of his choosing if Christie is 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 not the nominee. Doesn't matter who is. It could be Trump, Asa Hutchinson, Mike Pence, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott. Doesn't matter who it is as long as it's not someone named Christie. If Christie is not the nominee, then he has to buy me one dinner for four. So he would go, presumably... My wife and I would go out with he and his girlfriend, and he would buy one dinner for four at a restaurant of my choosing. So five to one odds, which I think I definitely got the better end of that deal. But that was the that was the terms. So be it. All right. 
15 seconds of fame. You get to be heard for on any subject you want for 15 seconds. Tomorrow, I believe Chaz Palminteri is going to be here. What day is today? Is today Wednesday? I think it is. All right. So uh, Brian Kilmeade will be here as well, and uh, we're working on a couple of other interesting things for tomorrow that I think uh, that I think you're really going to love. But uh, I'm hoping we can get Chaz Palminteri on the program because he's just such a fascinating guy. Um, and again, if you want to email me based on anything we didn't get to, you can do so frank.morano at redappleaudionetworks.com. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast. Search for The Other Side of Midnight on any podcast app. Hit the subscribe button while you're there. Give us a nice review. Without further ado, it's time for The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Roy! Hey, John Cabotinus, in case you don't know it, the way Curtis talks about Frank, it is called Brian. And I've had steak confidence, Sid Rosenberg. Fred! Hi, Frank. Love the show. You know, I was going to make an obscure Little Rascals reference, but I think I'll wait till next week. Neil! Happy third wedding anniversary to my son Andrew and his wife Rachel. I hope many, many more anniversaries are to follow. Raji! Already greedy supermarket and gas station owners are firing their American workers who, despite inflation, are daring to request a raise. Thank Louie! Sizzle moron, sizzle moron, sizzle moron. Lisa! <laughs> Yo, the mosquitoes that you spoke about the other day, now I got mosquito bites now. Oh, sorry about that. Chris. Hype up the significant difficulty or complexity involved in a task. You're ripping your brother off. It should be he would have to buy you a bag, snack-sized bag of peanuts. Frank. Yeah, um, there is no such thing as procrastination. You make a list. You take your time. And um, and something like uh, on the 24th of September, we uh, we figure out how we can donate even more. Mike. Morning, Frank. As a procrastinator, do you get paid? I'm just a procrastinator maintaining my amateur status for college and maybe the Olympics. Russ. <laughs> hey, between cold beer, naked women, and the Baltimore Orioles, I'm living the life. Brandon. I do appreciate you procrastinating to take my phone call. What I like to do to procrastinate is go to Murano Radio Fans and Haters Group on Facebook and make completely inane comments about Frank Murano. James. Let's go, Curtis. Let's go, Curtis. Joe. Yeah, stop putting things off, Frank, but when you procrastinate, you linger, and then another reason comes up. So there's different reasons. A new one comes up for the procrastination. Uh, well, that is true. Thank you, Joe. All right. Uh, we'll, that about slams the lid on things for today. Uh, tomorrow, as I said, we'll chat with uh, Brian Kilmeade about the news of the day. You know, he made quite a bit of news last week. We got a nice preview uh, when he was here last Thursday on that uh, story about the Ukrainian prosecutor turned out to be a pretty big story that he broke on Saturday. And he was kind enough to give us a preview of it on Thursday. So we'll talk to him about the kerfuffle that has been made there. 
And uh, Hurricane Idala, now a Category 3 storm with 125 mile-per-hour winds, poised to be a Category 4 storm in a matter of hours, wishing everybody the best of luck. And I hope everybody stays safe and uh, the property damage is minimal. So we'll see. If you're in Florida and listening, best of luck to you. My thanks as well to Dr. Daniel Friedman. If you want to check out his book, It's the Strange Case of Dr. Doyle. If you want to check out the post-show podcast, it's called The Darker Side of Midnight. Go to redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Frank Morano, good day.